Hey, Jay, guess what time it is? Um, let me see, about 9.45 Eastern? It's winter special time! Also that. And you know what that means? That I should go make cocoa? Oh, uh, yeah, probably. Want to go do that and then pick back up in a few minutes? Yeah, you know, let's. I think this is going to go a lot better if we've got cocoa. Right. I was going to say, it's finally time for X-Men number one. Oh, wow. Wow, it is, isn't it? Man, I don't know if I'm ready for this. That's that's a lot of pouches and a lot of muscles. Uh, not to mention Fabian Cortez's swoopy ponytail. If only it weren't attached to the rest of Fabian Cortez. Right? What's he up to these days, anyway? Decomposing, I'd imagine. He's dead. Actually, he died and then got revived into Crochet and then killed again, so he's like extra dead at this point. I'd forgotten about that. Who took him out? Which time? Uh, Necrotia, I guess? Uh, Deadpool threw Loa at him. Okay, Deadpool, I know. He's that guy who inexplicably hangs around the X-Men, but what's Loa's deal? Let's see, uh, she can move through solid matter, which disrupts its molecular structure and makes it break down. Sweet. Ooh, and she can breathe underwater. Nice. That's a weird combo, though. Um, no, actually, the water breathing isn't a mutation. She does that by way of a fancy amulet. How'd she get her hands on that? Well, her grandmother was... A magician? Pals with Namor. What?! Now, normally, Miles and I do the opening patter, but a very awesome young listener sent us her rendition of it. And this is the winter special, so... Take it away, Cordelia. Hi, I'm Jay Hazard, and I'm Miles Stokes, and we're here to explain the accent, because about time someone did... Welcome to episode 178 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men and Giant Size Winter Special number 4, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to an episode that we are very excited about. Not only do we have way more content than we normally do, as you can see by the runtime of the episode, but we are finally getting to arguably some of the most significant issues of X-Men ever. Also, we interview our producer, Matt, who's really, really awesome and who we're really excited to finally get on the air so that you guys can meet him, too. And, of course, we'll finish up with the fourth annual Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau Awards for Excellence in Excellence. We're recording this one a little earlier than we usually do. Generally, the winter special goes up the week between Christmas and New Year's. But yeah, I guess it's coming early this year. Maybe this winter is just that special. Maybe. We also want to give extra special thanks to the people who have made this giant size special and all of our giant size specials possible, those being our Patreon listeners. You all enable us to do this seriously. We cannot overemphasize that. And thank you so much. Yeah, we are a totally listener-supported podcast. And... Everything we do here is thanks to you guys. I mean, we have no advertisers. We have no sponsors. We literally just have listeners on Patreon. And you have stuck with us through some pretty intense stuff, especially this last year and even these last couple of weeks as Patreon restructured and unrestructured its fees. And the fact that you're still here with us, that you're still along and you're still making this possible, you're still enabling us to do this ridiculousness um, professionally somehow is pretty much the coolest holiday present ever. So thank you so much for making that happen. And if you are not one of those folks, take a minute to acknowledge a round of applause for the folks who are. Um, most of our Patreon stretch goals are basically related to making more cool free stuff for everyone. So yeah, the people who are subscribing and doing that are doing some rad altruistic stuff. And yeah, thank you. You're great. 
Meanwhile, like we said, we are finally covering the 1991 X-Men relaunch, and I can't adequately state what a big deal this was back in 1991. I mean, we had a second book with X-Men in the very name. We had all these characters reuniting for the first time, and we had comics that sold so, so many copies. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's talk a little bit more about these issues in general. Well, today we're going to be looking at the first arc of... X-Men Volume 2. This is the only arc that Chris Claremont was involved in. He scripted and I believe co-plotted these three issues with Jim Lee. Uh, Jim Lee, of course, did the pencils on them. And we've seen Chris Claremont and Jim Lee work together a great deal in, I don't know, the couple years leading up to this. They are a stellar team that does, I think, continue. But unfortunately, this was the era in which Chris Claremont was being forced out of Marvel because so much emphasis was being given to artists. He had less and less say in what was going on in his own comic. And in fact, he turned these three issues in, the scripts for these three issues, as he quit, as I understand it. So that's it. We have no more Chris Claremont in the Marvel Universe for many years after this story right here. This is very much the end of an era and very, very much the beginning of the new one. This is the launch of the team in, I think, its most iconic iteration, the one that the most people go back and default to because it's the one that most heavily informed the cartoon series, which had such a wide reach. Now, we should talk a little bit more about the decision to make a second X-Men book. I mean, this isn't totally unheard of. Like, we had the Avengers and the Avengers West Coast. We had Spider-Man in a couple books uh, of his own. But as for X-Men, this was a first. Previously, we just had different teams composed of different people with sort of different MOs. Now, there were two X-Men books about two branches of the same team. Yeah, and actually... Apparently, um, even X-Men editor at the time, Bob Harris, had some reservations about that. But at least according to him, editor-in-chief Tom DeFalco insisted and thus began I, the, the split that, that has m maintained pretty much through this day. Like there, there's been more than one Team X book at any given time straight through since 1991, hasn't there? Uh, there has, yeah. I mean, whether it was astonishing or uncanny or adjectiveless or new or whatever, from here on out, we're going to have more than one book with X-Men in the title, sometimes way more than one book with X-Men in the title. So I have a question about this. First of all, because this is this is much more your era than mine. And second, because I'm less familiar with the dynamics of the Avengers books. So my my impression of the Avengers West Coast Avengers split is that they were basically two distinct teams who had distinct adventures. But... From what I've seen and on, on a lot of the stuff, especially during during the early parts of this era, it almost feels like X-Men and Uncanny X-Men are halves of the same book. Yeah, and that was handled a couple different ways throughout the 90s. At this point, in the very early 90s, we have the blue team in Adjectiveless X-Men and the gold team in Uncanny X-Men, each with a distinct cast, each doing their own things, even though they're both based out of the X-Mansion and hanging out with each other sometimes. Later on, we're going to see Uncanny X-Men and Adjectiveless X-Men act almost like two halves of the same book, where you basically have to read one issue of Adjectiveless, one issue of Uncanny, one issue of Adjectiveless, one issue of Uncanny. It's just one big story, very confusingly laid out. For me, I like it better when it's just blue team in one book, gold team in the other, but alas, we cannot uh, tell Marvel what to do back in the 90s. I mean, we can. They just won't listen. It's true. It's, it's, sort, of like how, it's sort of like how anyone can talk to fish, but only Aquaman can make himself understood. <laughs> yes, exactly. Now, apparently one thing that the writers and the editors did agree on 
was that the situation of the, in the X-Universe before was not a great one. You had X-Men with some characters. You had X-Factor with other characters. They were different teams. Why weren't they working together? And in our past coverage, we've certainly seen the writers write around in circles to justify the two teams doing their own thing. So the original plan, apparently, according to Tom DeFalco, was to have the same five characters in each book, to have them be two halves of the same book, kind of like what would happen later in the 90s. But Chris Claremont and Bob Harris felt that it'd be wasting the other characters. At that point, the other characters would just be picked up by another book, and it would be the same X-Men X-Factor mess all over again. Now, as it turned out, there would be another X-Factor book during this era. But that was a sufficiently radically different version of the team that it got around the fact that you basically had just two different X-Men teams operating in the same area independently like that that x-factor is going to be a very very different incarnation of x-factor which we're going to get to next episode now the blue team are the characters who you're probably mostly familiar with if you've seen the cartoon there were a couple little differences like psylocke wasn't in the cartoon and storm was uh, along with gene gray but for the most part that's blue team blue team is the most iconic team which makes me feel kind of bad for the gold team nobody really remembers them as much And it's a shame because Gold Team is actually a really good lineup. Honestly, in terms of just team dynamics and character interplay, Gold Team is by far and away the more interesting group. Now, we'll get to who's on each team as we get to the coverage, but I do want to say Banshee and Forge, who were two major characters in like a number of the segments of the era leading up to this, they get kind of sidelined. They're basically support staff and they get largely written out, especially Banshee, pretty quick. As for Jubilee... She's nowhere in this new relaunch. Nobody even comments on it. But once Chris Claremont leaves, she'll be back with Adjectless X-Men number four. And Claremont has an interesting take on this, which is from comics interview number 98. Bob Harris basically thought that Jubilee was not a viable contribution to the team mix. His feeling was that by focusing a lot of attention and energy on a new kid character, it functioned to take a step or two away from the established characters. He wanted to restore the focus more tightly on them, so he decided to shunt Jubilee into the background for a while. The same sort of thing is probably going to happen to Forge and Banshee. They'll be there, but they'll be background characters, like Jarvis and the Avengers. That's a role that we've seen Banshee take voluntarily, repeatedly. It is, yeah. And I mean, as far as Forge being largely support, I think that's a role that works well for him. At the same time, it made me a little sad to see these characters who I loved, who were starting to gain focus, lose it again. But what can you do? Well... You can do a lot. And one of one of the issues with this book, one of the issues I have with this book in particular, is that part of why they drop out of visibility is that this book is so intensely fight focused that there's not really a lot of space for background characters or characters whose powers and contributions to the team aren't as combat centric. Agreed. Yeah. And that's something we're going to see all throughout the 90s. Combat is king. Now, there are a few other notable absences here. And... I'm going to get to those more as we're talking through, but the most significant for me are several of the members of what's going to become the next X Factor, who are absent from this story, and that's one thing, but who, who whose absence isn't even mentioned, which seems really odd given where it goes. In particular, Rain Sinclair, Wolfsbane, and Alex Summers Havoc, and you're going to see why in just a few minutes. Now, another thing we see for the first time with this issue and in this era is a whole lot of new costumes, mostly designed by Jim Lee. Those we're probably going to get to in their own episode. We'll just touch on them briefly here. But 90s X fashion is certainly a thing. And I got to say, I kind of love it. I am not as fond of them. And I think, honestly, that that is mostly a byproduct of the fact that by the time I got to this era... I was not nearly so young and impressionable as you were when you first encountered it. And I had also been exposed extensively to 
what I think are some much sharper versions of the costumes. Although, again, I don't know for sure whether they're actually better or if it's just that those are the ones that I became most familiar with first and so just sort of stuck with as, as the quote unquote real versions. That's one of the things about doing this podcast. Nostalgia is so much of it, and everybody has their X-Men default. Everybody has the version of X-Men that they impressed on. Including editors and creators, which is a really important thing to remember as you go back and read X-Books by, and, and this is going to be the default from here on pretty much, by creators who grew up reading the previous incarnations of the title. Now, as for this arc, Chris Claremont's final arc and the first arc of this new X-Men series, interestingly enough... It's almost more about Magneto than it's about the X-Men, which I kind of like. This is Chris Claremont's last arc, and if I had to pick one character that he did the most work on, it's probably the iconic X-Men villain, Magneto. In some ways, I think Magneto, more than any other character, embodied Claremont's vision for the X-Men um, during his tenure. The character who was dynamic, who was allowed to change and evolve, who never fit comfortably in, in the, in the one-dimensional good and evil paradigm of superheroes and supervillains, and who consistently challenged the other characters and the readers to ask difficult and challenging questions about that morality and that paradigm in those worlds. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, Magneto is Claremont's magnum opus, and if Claremont's going to have a mission statement, if he's going to sign off with, here's what X-Men is to me... Magneto's the character to do it with. Yeah, and this is a, this is a place you know we've we've mentioned before that a, a number of the speeches and and beats in recent in in X titles late in Claremont's run really f seem to reflect him as the author more directly than usual. And this is a point where Magneto's repeated reluctance to be recast in the role of villain to me very much seems to to be a reflection of Claremont's own stance on the direction the series was taking. Now, we'll get to Magneto's conflicts and gold teams and blue teams momentarily, but first... Previously on X-Men. The X-Men and X-Factor teamed up with the finally returned from space Charles Xavier to defeat the Shadow King and free Muir Island from his evil and sexy influence. The X-Men all agreed to work together from now on, but there were so many of them, and also there were some exceptions. Polaris, Multiple Man, and Guido, soon to be codenamed Strong Guy, are off to join Dr. Valerie Cooper and her new government-sponsored mutant team. Amanda Sefton has vanished along with Siren into metaphorical limbo yet again. That's an accident. It's not deliberate, and it's not really going to be retconned away very effectively. The Morlocks, Tom Corsi, and Sharon Friedlander are... probably in Scotland somewhere? But we still have Cyclops, Jean Grey, Beast, Iceman, Archangel, Wolverine, Psylocke, Jubilee, Storm, Gambit, Rogue, Colossus, Forge, and Banshee. Except for Jubilee. She's not actually around at this point. Plus, we have Professor Xavier and Muir Isle's own Dr. Moira McTaggart. And that last big collection of characters, those are going to be our cast going forward for quite a while. Now, let's look at the antagonist. Magneto, after a long stint as the headmaster of the Xavier School and an ally of the X-Men, found his way to the dinosaur-filled Antarctic Savage Land. There, he romanced Rogue and fought an evil priestess named Zaladane. Magneto became increasingly frustrated once again with what he saw as the good guy's naively optimistic methods of saving the world, and decided that he was done trying to fit his magnetic square peg of protecting mutants into Xavier's round hole of peaceful cohabitation. I'm so proud of that phrasing. Yeah, no, that was good. I'm 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 very proud of you. So he killed Zaladane and flew away from Rogue and from his attempts at heroism. Yeah. What we're gonna learn in this is that he just straight up noped out to space, which I respect deeply. Hulk only want to be left alone. 
No, that's actually Magneto in the story. And it's so sad. I, I go through this and it's 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 all of these people trying to drag him into fights and him being like, guys, just please just not on my law. I just I just want to hang out in space and generally like low key dislike everyone. That's all. Like he he just wants to be a curmudgeonly hermit. But no. Right. Let's begin at the new beginning with X-Men Volume 2, Number 1, Rubicon. So this issue, I suspect you, the listener listening to us right now, have seen this issue. You may have seen multiple copies of it because there are a whole, whole lot in circulation. In fact, this is, or at least was for a very long time, the best-selling single issue of all time for reasons related somewhat to the popularity of the X-Men, but more to very canny marketing strategies and ways in which the comics market is kind of singularly fucked up and a bit of an Ouroboros. So we both work in the comics industry in various capacities, and speaking from within that industry, 8 million copies is unheard of. To sell even a fraction of that in the modern market would be an incredible success. Yeah, to have a book consistently break six figures is a fairly con- fairly significant success in the modern comics market. Again, for a lot of reasons. And I think it's important in looking at this number to acknowledge the ways in which it's kind of an artificial figure. So let's let's talk about that and let's talk about sort of the external and business factors that went into the, this this huge unprecedented number. Well, the reason from that list that was most relevant to me as a kid is that there were five different variant covers to X-Men number one. Basically, it was a four-part, not a triptych, a quad tick. I'm sure there's a word for that, featuring different characters on each one. It was all the various X-Men of the blue and gold team facing off against Magneto in a pose that was definitely reminiscent of the original X-Men number one. So you could get one of each of those four covers, one of each of the four parts. Then there was a fifth variant that had all of them put together as a fold-out gatefold cover, which I gotta say, like, you know, the Playboy gatefolds were, were were mythical and desirable when I was a kid, but this, this blew them out of the water. This was what everybody wanted. And when I finally found my copy, I was so excited. You found a copy, and a lot of people found copies, but... A lot of copies also found their way to dollar bins. Um, in fact, if you are if you're a Patreon subscriber at a tier that gets you care packages, there's a decent chance that you own a copy of X-Men number one because I pick them up for a quarter to throw into those because I think they're cool artifacts and because there are that many of them floating around. Here's the deal with how comic sales counting works. Sales are counted by end customer sell-through. What bookstores order are returnable to the distributors and then to the publishers. So only the books that actually sell through to customers, to readers, are counted. Now, comics distribution doesn't work that way, at least in the direct market. It does sometime in newsstands, but at this point, remember the direct market. Comic shops were rising and taking over more and more and more of that business. And comic shops were where the collectors were going, which means that they're where this issue was targeted. And comics shops' purchases are non-returnable. That means that comic shops pre-order as many as they think will sell, and they are stuck with the surplus. It also means that sales are counted based on those comics shop orders, not on sell-through to customers. So if 8 million copies get ordered by comic shops and 12 people buy them, the sales total for that book that gets reported is still 8 million. 
a lot more than 12 people bought this book, but exaggerating kind of gives you an idea of how the model actually plays out in practice. And I don't think there's a really good way to record the sell through. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you can find some some tentative figures about it, but none of them are really that certain. And of course, there were many collectors who were going to those direct market comic shops and buying more than one copy. The variants were part of that. You know, a lot of people wanted to have one of each version of the cover, but so were the people buying lots and lots to make money to get rich, the speculators. Right. This comic is the incarnation of the speculator boom. It's a number one, so people thought it was going to be valuable, so they bought hundreds of copies, so it's not worth anything. Exactly. I mean, the main reason that Fantastic Four number one is worth so much is because a lot of people did what my dad did, which was to cut the monsters out and tape them to his wall. Which I think is frankly fucking awesome. Yup, it's one of my favorite stories about him. Yeah, no, but it's delightful because I, I love the idea that comics, I, I, I like comics a lot better when the intended audience are the people who love them and think they're awesome, not the people who buy them and put them away to sell later. Yeah, I completely agree. So, with all of that preamble, with all of that background out there, let's dive into the single best-selling comic of all time. I have a lot of trouble figuring out an angle from which to discuss this issue. And I feel like I should be upfront about that, because it's something I've really been struggling with going into this episode. And I know it's affecting my read on it, and it's going to affect the way I cover it. And... It's not that there's it's not that I find it abhorrent. It's not that there's, you know, that it's horrifically offensive. It's not even that it's bad because it's it's not really. Um, but while I know it's iconic and I know Lee is objectively a, a celebrated and in many ways good artist, this comic does absolutely nothing for me. Yeah, I was so surprised when you texted me earlier as we were preparing this episode and, and said so, because for me, there's just so much nostalgia and excitement built up around this issue. I mean, I am a noted critic of the 1990s, but as far as this issue and as far as this storyline, I was fully taken in. I was absolutely the target audience. And I think this is a point where that age difference not our age difference because you're actually slightly older than me, but the difference in the ages and perspectives with which we first encountered this make all the difference. Because you came into this, you would have been nine years old when this came out. And yeah, like you said, that is peak target audience for this. That's like the age where everything is cool and there are fights and you're in it for the neat, not necessarily for the coherent. I mean, to be fair, I'm kind of still in it more for the neat than for the coherent. Valid. But, and here's where I think this is critical, that's also before you had a really crystallized sense of what the X-Men meant to you in an ideal form. And I came into this with a very clear sense of what I come to X-Books for, and none of those are things that this series, or at least its first three issues, have. Again, this is everything that I don't come to the X-Men for, and everything that for a long time kind of turned me off of superhero comics in a very general way. It's got, it's pretty much all fights, very, very little around them. The characters feel two-dimensional. They've got kind of gimmicks, with very few exceptions. Magneto being the most notable, the characters feel pretty two-dimensional. They're kind of cardboard cutouty with with minor gimmicks. Um, the art's cool and energetic, but it's pretty middle of the road when it comes to actual storytelling. The cast is enormous and unwieldy. I cannot imagine trying to follow this, trying to dive into this, unless you are already an avid X-Men fan. Okay, see, for me, that was part of the fun, because when I started reading X-Men right around when I was nine years old, I think, although I'd grown up having it read to me occasionally, 
I was reading everything at once. I was reading these comics as they were coming out. I mean, okay, technically number six was the first one I, I bought on my own, but still I was reading the 70s and 80s stuff that I got from my dad. I was picking up random issues of other comics that sometimes crossed over. I was looking at trading cards. It was a goddamn mess. And so having this be, you know, an introduction to the X-Men as they were, having this set the status quo, I didn't mind that there was so much going on. I didn't mind that I didn't know who the hell Mutant Alpha was or what the deal with Forge was or Moira McTaggart. That didn't matter. I was entering this gigantic world. I was diving in head first. And the confusion, what that mainly did for me was to draw the outline of this enormous superhero world where there was so much going on, so much more going on that could just fit into one story. So a lot of the excitement came from that. A lot of the excitement came from the fact that while this is a self-contained story, it references backstory going back decades, and sometimes you get a little caption saying, see the now classic issue, blah, 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 and sometimes you don't. I felt like I was part of the X-Men world because I wasn't having a story cleanly laid out for me, because I was seeing well over a dozen main characters all doing their thing. It was the best kind of overwhelming. But you were coming into this. As you said, in the midst of a cyclone of X-Men, you had the trading cards, you had your dad's old comics, you had access to a lot of other aspects of this universe at the same time as this. You didn't walk into a comic store, look at this number one and say, it's just starting, it looks cool, I'm going to pick it up. That's true, yeah. And I'd actually be very curious to hear in the comments for this episode from listeners who did that. If anybody started with X-Men Volume 2 Number 1, what was that like? What did you think? Are you okay? Do you need an adult? But yeah, this is this is a comic that is, I think, in general, and, and some of this, a lot of this, I think, is my reaction to Jim Lee's art, because I'm I'm not I, I get why people like him and I get what's good about his art and I can see it and I can recognize it, but I'm I'm not particularly a Jim Lee fan. And so there's that. But also just, you know, coming out of the first the first issue, if I got this to check it out in a vacuum, I wouldn't pick up number two. And coming out of, and, and you know, if, if I did somehow stick it through the first arc, I probably wouldn't have followed the series further. And that's a really strange thing to realize as I'm looking at this, because with a lot of other titles, in fact, I think with every other title we've covered so far, even the ones that get off to rough starts get much better. And even the ones that have, have low moments, you know, have, have a lot going for them either so early or, or, you know, fast enough that I'm pretty invested in them by then. And this is the first one that just hasn't really grabbed me. Well, so listeners, there you have it. You're going to have two very different perspectives on this comic, which hopefully will make for some excellent discussion. So let's talk about the plot. Yeah, I should say I, I can find plenty to enjoy going into this as as an expert rather than just a reader. And, and I'm not I, I don't want the time back. It's just it's just a little bit jarring to, to make that transition from from what came before. Oh, and I also worry I worry a lot about Psylocke. Uh, I mean, she's got some problems. It's true, like the whole body swap thing, the whole colonialism being built into her backstory. No, I worry about Psylocke's spine. That's fair. Apparently, it's very, very flexible from what we've seen in the art from the 1990s. So in a lot of ways, this this arc represents a reversion to status quo. Uh, two, two and a half to three generations of X-Men are finally going to be back under one banner, under one roof, although they are going to be in two squads, led or at least supervised by Charles Xavier. There is no mention at this point in, in any of these issues of the offshoot teams, which really interests me. Excalibur never comes up. X-Factor never comes up. X-Force is mentioned once, I think, but only briefly. 
only briefly and only because someone is possessed at the time. Um, but anyway, story-wise, we open with a space fight, which I will at least admit is a real auspicious way to open pretty much any story. The pursued party in this space fight, or more like space flight because they're fleeing, is a bunch of people in gold spacesuits who are looking for Asteroid M, the asteroid base of Magneto, Master of Magnetism. I wonder if they're on like a space version of one of those Hollywood celebrity house gates tours. On your left, you will see Magneto's volcano base, where he turned the X-Men into babies, sort of. On your right is Asteroid M, where he took a circus cart into the sky one time. Now, the folks looking for Asteroid M are wearing flashy gold spacesuits. They're being pursued by, by other folks in similar craft, because it's one of theirs that the folks in gold have stolen. These guys are, are wearing mint green space armor, which I assume means that they're the villains, or at least less glam. As it turns out, the people in green are S.H.I.E.L.D., you know, the cops of Earth, basically. And they are led by strike leader Harry Delgado and some other people whose names don't really matter because they're going to die pretty soon. They all end up pretty much crash landing on Asteroid M. And Magneto, who is holed up there for the first of many times in this story arc, has absolutely no time for the bullshit that has showed up at his house. I am Magneto. This is my home. I am rapidly losing interest in whatever you choose to do on the Earth's surface. Despoil the environment. Slaughter yourselves to the last child. I no longer care. But I refuse to allow you to export your penchant for violence to my very doorstep. So, Lee's Magneto is really great. He is. He's got he's got this sort of amazing mane of 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 silvery hair. It's a, a lot wilder than it usually gets to be and and sort of perpetual five o'clock shadow. And he just looks both really intense and really damn tired. He also looks like a bodybuilder who decided to go become a bodybuilder, but like more. That's something we see in Jim Lee's art all the time. Everyone is very muscular and this Magneto is so buff, but he's also just impressive looking in general. Like we're going to find out that these mutants, they're fleeing to Asteroid M because they see him as a sort of messiah figure and seeing the way Jim Lee draws him like, yeah, yeah, OK, I'll buy that. Are, are they specifically bodybuilder mutants? I mean, I guess they are because everyone is during this era, but man right they may also have come due to legend of his canny fashion sense which we will arrive at shortly but yeah god every like magneto is is the precise opposite of everything that frustrates me about the art here like jim lee at this point still draws women in any non-battle scene like they are posing for a swimsuit catalog not not in like sexualized pinup poses but like they're posing in a swimsuit catalog and his magneto poses and like struts and wears ridiculous outfits, and I don't care, and I love him, and he's perfect. Like, this this is one of those points where those things feel like characterization for Magneto, and he's got so much texture, and Jim Lee is so good at drawing, like, grizzled but elegant. He totally is. Man, I want to see that on his female characters. I want to see him draw, like, Moira McTaggart looking grizzled but elegant. That would be really awesome. I wish we saw more of that, too. But... Magneto tears asunder the spaceships of both S.H.I.E.L.D. and these mutants, and the mutants plead with Magneto to take them in, to be their leader. And Magneto is really not into this idea. We're going to see this again and again and again through this arc. Magneto just wants to be left alone. He wants these kids to get off his lawn and leave him in, in peace to shake his cane at the Earth. Speaking of Earth, back on our glorious blue planet... 
the powers that be, the world leaders, who have a limited perspective on the situation at hand, really just see Magneto wrecking a bunch of spaceships. And so they decide that he is back to his old hijinks, and they gotta take him down. And this is going to be very, very important. But some people who don't really know what's going on yet are the X-Men back in Westchester. The X-Men don't know what's going on because they are too busy having all of the muscles. All of them. They're also testing the mansion's defenses. Now, last we saw the mansion, it had been blown the hell up, or at least the parts of it that weren't underground had been. Now it's fine. Well, until the X-Men who are trying to break into it to test it basically tear through it all, I assume they just have to rebuild it on a bi-weekly basis, which is how they're able to do it so quickly when it gets completely raised. The contracting industry in Westchester is doing really, really well in this era. All right, so let's have a quick X-Men roll call. We talked about this briefly when we introduced the two teams, but who have we got on hand right now? Well, the mutants that will become the blue team are Cyclops, Rogue, Beast, Gambit, Psylocke, and Wolverine. Uh, repping for the gold team to be are Storm, Jean Grey, newly codenameless, Iceman, Archangel, and Colossus. And on the sidelines are Forge and Banshee. Professor X and Jean, as this training exercise is going on, have a very on-the-nose conversation about new beginnings, the ongoing validity of his dream, the fact that some of the new mutants died while he was in space, that sort of thing. This is a conversation that gets revisited every time Professor X shows back up from space or from a trip or whatever, and, you know, sits down with whatever form the X-Men are in and sort of has a, is my dream still valid? What's really going on now? Do I still belong here conversation? And usually at this point, the answer is going to be yes. Later on, it'll become no. And I think those times are more interesting. But for now, I have been away so long, Jean. I look at the world and cannot help wondering if my dream has any validity anymore. If it didn't, we wouldn't be here. Wolverine manages to get further than anyone else of, of the group trying to break in because he correctly identifies and carves up a bunch of Charles Xavier robot decoys that apparently are all around now because I guess Xavier is just straight up living the Victor Von Doom lifestyle. But in this big fight, in all of the X-Men trying to break through the mansion's defenses, there are so many incredibly iconic images. I mean, a ton of trading cards, a ton of advertisements are just from this issue. There's one of Rogue flying away from a bunch of missiles that's like the Rogue image. Yeah, even if you have never read this comic, when you go through it, you're going to recognize so much of the art. This is the stuff that's been on the back of toy packages. It's been in role-playing books. It's used anywhere that they need a stock illustration for the characters or for a specific scene. That rogue is iconic. There's a Magneto in here, a couple of Magnetos, actually, that I think are are really iconic. And there are also some really sly homages to previous iconic images. Um, the one I caught most immediately was, was one where... Um, Wolverine and, and Cyclops basically do giant size X-Men number one, but there's 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 a few more throughout. It's great. And as ways to open a new series go, as ways to introduce the presumably larger number of new readers go, I think this works. We've talked about how Danger Room opens, let you see who the characters are, what their powers are, that sort of thing. And here we have almost the ultimate Danger Room open. We have multiple squads attacking the mansion itself in various combinations. It's not just in a tiny room, even a tiny holographic room. It's on the grounds of this entire manor, and it's freaking great. But there are so many of them. There are so many, and the manor isn't actually laid out in ways that make spatial sets or connect. Eh, back in 1991, we didn't worry too much about that. That's something I actually have a lot of trouble with. In early X-Men, and especially in, in post-Dark Phoenix saga, 
and, and Dark Phoenix Saga and the Burn Cockrum Smith eras, the mansion is such a defined physical space. And when you see stories that take place in it and span it, there's physical connectivity and, and very much a sense of place that informs the shape of those stories. And that's pretty much gone at this point and will be for a pretty long time. And it's frustrating to me because I liked that. I thought that was really helpful as a reader. There's actually a guide to the mansion that came out uh, within the next couple of years after this. It was spiral bound. It was really cool. It had maps and stuff. I spent so much time poring over that. But yeah, you're right. In this story, they don't really worry too much about it. I mean, I don't know that they worried too much about it in subsequent stories either. I've 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 read Onslaught, Miles. Ooh, well, there is that. All right. So speaking of of the mansion, um, the X-Men all get introduced, but they, they have all kind of reverted to kind of simplified cardboard cutout versions of, of their earliest incarnations. You know, Cyclops is uptight and authoritarian. Wolverine is grumpy and rebellious. Jean is understanding, but not much more. Beast is bantery. And it just it feels dilute. I can see where you're coming from there, and I think part of it for me was that in my deep dive into all of the X-Men at the same time, I knew the characters, and so the context was just already there for me. I was able to fill in the blanks. Okay, um, but fortunately for those of us without context who, can, who need the blanks uh, filled in, we've got Nick Fury, and... You know, remember the plaid suit from the Silver Age? Of course. And just just how much it sort of defined the visual sense of that. I think of this era as the era of excessively muscular men in excessively tight three-piece suits. Like Nick Fury's wearing his special ops costume by this point, but the first time we see him in this comic, he's basically wearing the same outfit that Cable's wearing in that one library scene in New Mutants where he's he's just like wearing the fancy suit and the glasses and 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 reading and looking super erudite, and it fits him the same way, which is to say, as if it's painted on. But let's talk about what Nick Fury, head of S.H.I.E.L.D., is wearing now as he holograms himself into the Danger Room's control room. Muscles and pouches. Muscles and pouches and guns and knives and more pouches and capsules. Like, okay, you know how some joggers will jog with, like, little weights on their ankles or on their wrists, and that helps them get more of a workout? You see that happen in Dragon Ball Z as well, but, like, writ very large. This is writ very large also. The amount of random crap that Fury is wearing, like, I can see why Jim Lee characters are so buff. If they're carrying that crap around all the time, they're going to get incredibly muscular. Wait. Maybe it actually is just weights. Maybe he's got ball bearings and all of those, and he can sort of customize the weight load based on what kind of physical activity he's doing. You know, we've really not heard very many good explanations of what's in those pouches, except more than occasionally. I think you're right. I think it's mostly ball bearings. Um, excuse me. I have a very good explanation of what's in those pouches, which is office supplies, clearly, because that is what any reasonable person would put in that many pouches of that size. Well, Nick Fury doesn't have a whole lot to say about ball bearings or office supplies because he's got some news for the X-Men. What he's got is an update on the Magneto situation, that, that the world leaders are invoking the Magneto protocols at this point, only hazily defined, but it's bad news. And the X-Men's response to this is mixed. Cyclops just straight up does not trust Magneto, which is both consistent with what we saw in X-Factor and kind of a thing that we're going to see with the original five in general, which makes sense to me because when someone tries real hard and real persistently to kill you before you can legally vote, it probably makes a pretty significant impression. And also relevant and also probably responsible for why the non-X-Factor X-Men trust Magneto a little bit more and stick up for him. 
the original five X-Men were off doing their X-Factor thing when Magneto was at the mansion, when Magneto was basically a member of the X-Men. They didn't really get to see this reformed Magneto much at all. They just knew what they what had happened back in the Silver Age and what they saw on the news, which was very seldom flattering to, well, mutants in general. Which they, more than anyone else, should have realized was largely spin, but so it goes. Now, this is the point where the X-Men officially get split into the blue and gold strike teams. They don't quite have their own books yet, though, so we're going to alternate between the two of them in this title for a little bit longer. But first, back to Asteroid M, where Magneto has grudgingly rescued all of the space guys, and they're now at each other's throats, and he is basically standing there like the world's most frustrated, responsible adult who has just told the kids that, yes, they can come in because it started raining, and now they are breaking all of his priceless furniture. Right, exactly. We got to talk about Magneto's outfit here, though, because it's I I mean, it's kind of like if you combined a male ballerina's outfit with a bathrobe with some boudoir gear. All right. Let me just put this out here. Now, I know that magnetism is his official forte, but I think this panel proves beyond any shadow of doubt that Magneto is likewise the master of excellent, flattering, and unlikely loungewear. He is wearing a pair of full tights, full-footed tights, um, with a high waist and a, a red sash or cummerbund of some sort. Also, a somewhere between a kimono and smoking jacket with tied back sleeves that's also white with red trim. Um, that is is pulled and tucked back with a long flared end of it behind him, and he just he just looks fucking awesome. Like this looks like future fashion as envisioned in a really good, like more flowy than usual '60s science fiction movie. I mean, I liked the future scene at the beginning of Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey where everyone was wearing all that big, bulky, colorful foam, but maybe this would have been a better call. It's both comfortable and exceptionally stylish. But everybody there is awful enough to finally make Magneto lose his temper, which, as we know, is fucking terrifying. At the heart of this is Fabian Cortez, an asshole with a long ponytail who basically talks Magneto into starting a cult. He does this using a clever mix of flattery, paranoia, and mutant supremacist philosophy. And this happens, this is, there has been a skirmish and and one of his allies, a woman named Anne-Marie, has been shot. It looks like she's dead. She's not. She's going to be fine. But for the moment, that's what we've got when Cortez tells Magneto, Dreadlord, I am Fabian Cortez. Forgive my intrusion. I share your grief. Anne-Marie was a valued comrade. But you must know the great powers below will of a certainty react to what has happened here. They will do so to their regret. Lord, we know your strength is a match for any powers they marshal against you, but all they will see is a lone man. For deterrence to be credible, and deterrence is misspelled here, by the way, it must be couched in terms those flat scans understand. Flat scans. Those genetic dead ends, unblessed with our mutant abilities. What terms, Cortez, do you suggest? Okay, can we talk about the fact that this man calls Magneto Dreadlord? I mean, if you're part of a mutant semi-cult who just flew through space away from Earth space cops to get to this dude, then I feel like thinking of him as a Dreadlord, I mean, that scans. Okay, what if you're actually faking the entire cult so that you can get to him, sap away his powers and strength gradually by convincing him that you're healing him, and then kill him so you can get points in an ill-developed game that you're playing against a bunch of other rich assholes? Because that's what Cortez is actually doing here. There is that, yeah. Now, as far as Fabian Cortez, 
According to The Real Gentleman of Leisure, a X-Men review site I highly recommend, I've heard the character was named after Fabian Nicieza, whom Claremont apparently resented for helping oust Wheezy from New Mutants, but I've never seen that corroborated. And like you said, Jay, Fabian will end up joining the Upstarts, one of the go-to villain groups from especially the early 90s, and this is also the first time we hear the word flat scan, which for me is one of those X-Men 90s code words. If you hear that word, you know it's probably 1991+. plus. Well, you see it in the early aughts as well, and actually on and off throughout when he, whenever, you know, a, a team of, of, of mutant teenagers start reading a lot of Magneto or, or getting overly supremacist or, or generally divisive in their rhetoric around mutant human integration. But going back to 1991 with this, with, with Cortez's impassioned speech, Magneto enters the game. And when Professor X senses him entering Earth's atmosphere, he sends Blue Team to go engage, which they do. And, man, so this might be another reason this book isn't sticking with me. Because as a rule, and I've, I've talked about this before, my shorthand way to measure the strength of any given X team is it's Cyclops. And the Cyclops in this book is so awful. Like, I, it's, it's so awful that it reads as parody, and I honestly kind of loved it until I remembered that this comic set the tone for years of characterization, including the animated series. And, and, and then I got kind of depressed again because this Cyclops is basically just saying things like, bag the banter, people, and get aboard. We've no time to waste. God, you're totally right. That is absolutely cartoon Cyclops right there. Stand down, Wolverine. Right. So the blue team finds Magneto in a moment of intense symbolism. He is raising the Leningrad, which is the Soviet submarine who is going after him, that he sank in Uncanny X-Men number 150 and steals its nuclear weapons. Well, shit. Right? And I mean, I can kind of understand why he's doing this. Like, he knows where it was, because metal and stuff. And it's really just in response to the fact that he now knows that the UN powers are arming against him. Incidentally, the Soviet Union is going to officially dissolve about two months into this run, which means that these issues started feeling real anachronistic real fast. That said, I mean, it's a pretty cool Cold War metaphor. It is, yeah. Um, the next arc actually focuses on Omega Red, and I don't remember it at all, and I'm curious to see whether it's it's gonna gonna actually incorporate the dissolution of the USSR. Well, Magneto keeps trying to prove to the X-Men who have, ar- who have arrived on his uh, space asteroid that he's not really a villain, but his methods of proving that leave a bit to be desired. He does a lot of things like trapping them in place and saying, look, if I were a real villain, I'd kill you, but I'm just freezing you in place. And also, I just disabled your ship. I didn't wreck it. You can take it back home. See, I'm good. I'm good. Look, look, this is me. I'm reformed. Just please just leave me alone and my nuclear weapons. I feel so bad for Magneto. Like, I completely get where he's coming from. I mean, maybe not the nuclear weapons part, but, you know, the, the general philosophy behind it all. <laughs> he's he's just sitting there on his porch, waving his nukes at the kids trying to get them off his lawn still, basically. Exactly. Now, there's a big fight despite Magneto's protestations, and one of the things that surprised me is that Wolverine, who before was one of the people saying, Magneto's just a guy, let's stop looking at him as a symbol, Wolverine slashes the crap out of Magneto, he damn near guts him. Yeah, this is a Wolverine who is defined basically by two things, which are disagreeing with Cyclops whenever Cyclops says anything, and being more violent than is called for. 
and he'll do whichever of those is an option in a given scene, regardless whether it conflicts with the other in a past one. It's a little unfortunate. I mean, we've seen Wolverine's Berserker rages before, certainly. We've seen him get pushed too far and just lose it and start slashing the crap out of everybody, but I don't think that's really happened at this point. I would think he would listen to what Magneto's saying. Yeah, this Wolverine isn't so much out of control as just kind of an asshole. Pretty much, yeah. Now, Rogue, who of course has history with Magneto, both romantic and otherwise, tries to talk to him as the fight continues outside into Earth's atmosphere. And they're at least starting to have a conversation when everything is once again ruined by outside interference as Soviet fighters show up and try to shoot her out of the sky. And Magneto responds by detonating a fucking nuke. So that's a whole thing. That's a really big deal, you guys. That's that's a really, really big deal. And I mean, to be fair, the comic does address that as it goes, but... For now, Rogue, who of course is damn near invulnerable, uh, if not necessarily shrugging things like nuclear weapons and rocket attacks off, she wakes up in a hospital in Genosha, in the formerly anti-mutant apartheid state, just as Magneto's acolytes attack that very hospital. Now, they're joined by Delgado. He was one of the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents Magneto captured, one of the ones who was chasing after the Acolytes. And he's got superpowers now, but they're not actually his. They're effectively being granted by one of the Acolytes. And it's implied here that there's some kind of coercion or mind control going on. It's really unclear. Like, it seems maybe there are two different Delgados, uh, one person from each side named Delgado, or maybe it's the same dude. The characters even have a conversation about how confused they are. I don't know how this got through editorial or why. I honestly kind of appreciate that. Like, I feel like it's just them going off on a useless tangent, and then later on they're going to be like, oh, it's the same guy he was just kind of chrome-plated and mind-controlled. Obviously. Maybe. But Magneto then shows up and confronts the X-Men who themselves have showed up with his deadliest weapon. A metric fuckton of word balloons. Like, I'm going to put this whole spread in the visual companion Because honestly, I think there are more square inches of word balloons than art in it. There may very well be, yeah. So that's basically where the issue ends, aside from finding out that Moyer McTaggart has a dark secret, sort of. Yeah, it's actually a huge red herring. But as far as how this goes, I really like the Acolytes, these mutants who have come to uh, find Magneto and convince him to be a jerk again, as villains for a back-to-basics approach. I mean, this is the X-Men versus mutant supremacists with Magneto's soul as the prize hanging in the balance. That's iconic. That works for me as far as an X-Men story. On one hand, the Acolytes are technically the most active antagonists here. On the other hand, in terms of pushing Magneto back into villainy, I kind of feel like everyone's the bad guy here. It's true, yeah, but I like the way he handles this because one of the big things he says is that the Acolytes are doing shitty things, yeah, but they're his responsibility as mutants. Like, he should be the one to punish or judge them, not humans. Okay, I I disagree with with you here because I feel strongly that Magneto relinquished his handling this in any reasonable way credentials when he set off a fucking nuclear weapon. And the thing is, that's Magneto. Magneto is a dude who has motivations that make sense, and then he just takes them too far, sometimes way too far. Which, again, he may not have been right, but he made some valid points. And that's why we draw that distinction. Exactly. 
And that takes us into the second issue, Firestorm, which opens right where we left off with Magneto facing off against the blue team who have just defeated the Acolytes in the ruins of Hammer Bay, one of the biggest cities in Genosha. And I gotta say, the blue team looks fucking badass all hanging out together in their battle poses. This is the part where I get kind of weirded out by who is not here. That's Havoc and Wolfsbane. They're not here and they're not mentioned. And they were centrally involved in the reconstruction efforts in Genosha. And working closely with Chief Magistrate Anderson, who we're going to see here. And the fact that that never even comes up is very strange to me. At the same time, you know, Val Cooper is 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 looped in and X-Factor is never mentioned either. I mean, my personal take on that is that X-Factor number 71, the first appearance of the team that included Havoc and Wolf Spain, was going on at the same time. Probably they had just left Genosha. I agree, though, that it's weird that they aren't even mentioned. Yeah, I feel like there should be a side, you know, should we drop in and visit while we're here? Nah, let's just keep hitting Magneto. Speaking of Magneto, he is still real frustrated, and, and Cyclops is still accusing him of not caring, basically reading the, the, the worst into it. And to be fair, the Acolytes did attack a hospital, which is really uncool. Magneto, for his part, defends himself. As always, Cyclops, you see me as you wish. And who knows... Perhaps that is as I truly am. He really doesn't care about this place being destroyed. It's Genosha. It's a nation that did terrible, terrible things to mutants. Things that were a little bit parallel to some of the stuff Magneto saw going on in the Holocaust. So dude's got no sympathy for this country being screwed up. Those things were a lot parallel, man. Those things were like tattoos and internment camps and medical experimentation things. That's that's not a real subtle connection. Again, Magneto made some valid points. He follows up on those valid points by dropping the X-Men into a deep pit, ostensibly so that they can rescue the innocents that he put in danger in his attack. And he, you know, says again, look, if I were a villain, I would kill you, but I'm just going to drop you gently into this pit. You can do your rescue stuff. Just leave me alone. Seriously, I just want to go back to space with my unruly space children. Now, Fabian Cortez is doing his lead toady job pretty well over here as he watches the fight. That's the spirit, Lord. Put those arrogant upstarts in their proper place once and for all. Ironic, given that he is, in fact, one of the upstarts. Right? Well, as he's ironically toadying, Psylocke, who has managed to use her ninja skills to somehow avoid being dropped into a great big pit, sneaks up on him, preparing to psychic knife the crap out of him, but he grabs her and kisses her non-consensually, using his powers to make her explode with telepathic energy. Interesting, and also, God damn it, Fabian Cortez, there are way too many non-consensual kisses in X-Men these days. Gambit did it in the previous issue, by the way. There are, I think, at least three in this first arc. I, I put that in my initial notes because I it was so damn frustrating. Um, but this is this is Fabian's power. Now, we've seen that he can help Magneto with 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 how how run down and screwed up Magneto is but we haven't seen what Fabian's actual power is whether he's a healer or what and here's where we find we find out what he does he amps up mutant powers to 11 now Magneto interrupts the fight as Beast and Gambit jump in to save Psylocke from her way too much telepathy problems and at this point Magneto has Cyclops and Wolverine bound in metal which is kind of weird because he had said that he was dropping them into a pit to help people. But again, it's the 90s. Let's maybe not worry too much about the details. In his defense, they did then proceed to go back to attacking him. Stop! 
With a whole world screaming for mutant blood, we cannot afford to waste our energies fighting amongst ourselves. To which Beast replies, Strange, we always figured we were standing against injustice. Then, Beast, your place should be by my side. For what greater injustice can there be than a people who would hate and even destroy their children? Simply because they exist. All right, how many times have you fought your own kids at this point, Magneto? But still, Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch aside, and Polaris for that matter, it is such a good call having Magneto in Genosha. It gives him the push he needs to go back to some of his old views. This feels believable. If you're going to make Magneto more of a villain again, showing him the perfect example of what happens when people don't use his methods, what is still allowed to exist when people are, as he sees it, soft on oppression, like, This is good character work. Yeah, Magneto may not always be right, but everyone else is fairly definitely wrong. Exactly. Meanwhile, Psylocke uses the focused totality of her psychic might, which is to say her psychic knife, to take Magneto down. And again, this is our clear illustration of just how powerful Cortez is. He has turned her abilities up to the extent that she can psychically attack Magneto through his helmet. That's big. Not even Charles Xavier can manage that. Not even the Phoenix can do that, I think. But thanks to one of the acolytes using ill-defined but cool powers, the bad guys, along with their prisoners, escape back to Asteroid M, where Magneto isn't mad at Cortez for the way the situation went down in Genosha. So much is disappointed, which is so much worse. Yeah, no, Magneto basically talks to the Acolytes like they are his bad space children, and I love every second of it. They also turn the X-Men into Chrome on the way back up, which is odd. Eh, Odd, but pretty cool. And time-honored. I mean, Doctor Doom did it once. He did. Now, back on Earth, the gathered world leaders, in addition to the increasingly encumbered by armament Nick Fury, are watching this with great concern, which, you know, is understandable. Like, yes, Genosha may have been a nation of assholes, but Magneto and his new mutant army did just attack an Earth nation, and they're armed with nukes. This is bad times. I can kind of see why the UN's freaking out. Okay, but Genosha is terrible. I mean, obviously, so terrible. So terrible. So, like, I don't even get why people like it. Yeah, I mean, the people with privilege like it because they have privilege. Yeah, they should just be like, you can't sit here anymore. No, um, no, actually, the, the UN, except for China, interestingly, is, is generally on Genosha's side in this. And the USSR is particularly peeved, understandably, since it was in their airspace that most of the conflict took place. And it was their, you know murdered, destroyed submarine full of the skeletons of dead sailors that Magneto exhumed so he could pull all of the nukes off it and blow them up in Soviet airspace. So they decide that it is time to institute the Magneto Protocols. Exactly. And that's where we find out what the Magneto Protocols are, which is one of the most comic booky things I've ever seen. It's a non-metal plasma cannon that the Russians launch into space. That's it. That's the Magneto Protocols. Back at Asteroid M, Fabian Cortez tells Magneto something very interesting. So Cortez had healed Magneto earlier, or something, it's pretty ambiguous at this point, but while he was doing so, he found an anomaly in Magneto's DNA. Or so Cortez claims. Genetic engineering in the DNA itself. Magneto's DNA has been messed with. So that's interesting. I wonder who might have an interaction with genetics. Coincidentally, we cut to the boathouse of the X-Mansion, 
where Professor Xavier finds Dr. Moira McTaggart, one of the leading geneticists in the world, who is currently drunk and sad and dramatically lit by the sunset coming through the boathouse window. Yeah. So Moira is drinking because she decided to play God. But before she can explain what's actually going on, Magneto rockets in for answers, pours himself a drink, and shoots the entire boathouse into space because he is a stylish gentleman who has a shtick and sticks with it. I mean, it's not as good as the time he rocketed a circus cart full of X-Men into space, but I would say it's a solid second place. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That's the plot point that keeps on giving. Where's a giant metal Ronald Reagan in a cowboy hat when you need one? Um, Texas, I assume. Yeah, no point. Xavier has no idea what the hell is going on, but Magneto explains that back in Defenders number 16, he got turned into a baby by Mutant Alpha. Okay, so this was one of the things we considered for the cold open, but instead you should just listen to the podcast Tighten Up the Defense in episodes number 42 and 44, which cover that story. It is freaking bananas magneto like builds himself a mutant who keeps getting smarter and smarter and then eventually turns magneto into a baby because okay this also leads fairly directly to magneto kidnapping all of the x-men and force feeding them baby food in another bronze age story as revenge so it's kind of the gift that keeps on giving but not really giving anything good it's like the gift that keeps on showing up with like buckets of centipedes I mean, I guess some people would like that. That is a little horrifying. Buckets of, like, really shitty centipedes. Not scientifically interesting or relevant centipedes. Like, these centipedes are jerks, and and they're racist. Man, I hate those fucking centipedes. And they're really into Linkin Park. Ugh, made it even worse. Also in this flashback, we find out that it was, in fact, Dr. Moira McTaggart who cared for Baby Magneto... Up until a bird-headed space bondage Viking re-aged Magneto, let's not worry about that part. This is actually a big deal because in the climactic trial scene in Uncanny X-Men number 200, where Magneto is on trial for crimes against humanity, he's exonerated in part because it was the old Magneto before the de-aging and re-aging who did all the super shitty things. Okay, I'm thinking about all of the things that we just had to go through to explain what happens here and why it's relevant. And I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking that of every story hook, every pre-existing conflict or arc or concept that had been planted in decades of X-Men, this is the one that they chose to jumpstart the new the new generation with? That's right, Magneto being a baby. But honestly, as bizarre as this plot point is, and I agree, this is a weird fucking choice— this is one of the things I was talking about. This is where I read this issue, and I was like, what the hell is going on? Clearly, this is a vast and fascinating world where supervillains can get turned into babies, raised by geneticists, and re-aged by bondage Vikings. I mean, it does kind of give you a what-you-see-is-what-you-get cannonball into the deep end of X-Men. Like, you know, this is, this is the X-Men, y'all. You can take it or leave it. Exactly. So... Moira McTaggart pleads ignorance. She doesn't know what Magneto's talking about. So Magneto throws Xavier out into space to begin to suffocate until she talks. Xavier is horrified by what a total dick his old friend is being. Where is the good, decent, honorable man to whom I entrusted my school? The question is not what happens to that man you describe. 
but whether he ever even existed. Only Dr. McTaggart can answer that. What follows is one of the most remarkably hand-wavy bits of superhero comic science I have ever seen. So, Moira was taking care of baby Magneto in the ways that you do, so like, you know, running genetic scans on him, and found a genetic marker that somehow indicated to her that eventually his powers would drive him mad. So she fixed it, as one does, just, you know, straight up fixed it, um, hoping she could then use the same process on her son, Proteus. Magneto is pretty upset, understandably, since she literally used infant him without anyone's informed consent as a guinea pig. Right. He compares her to Joseph Mengele, the horrible scientist from the Nazi party during the Holocaust. And he insists that what what he wants her to do is is the same thing to the X-Men, and it's going to be a complicated revenge thing, sort of like the baby food scenario. He actually built a robot for that. Like, that's one of the stories that just weirds me out real hard because he put so much thought into it. One of the things I respect about Magneto is that he does not half-ass his revenge schemes. He goes through them very, very thoroughly. And he almost kills Moira. He begins to torture her until she agrees to do exactly this, to use her confusing genetic modification on the blue team to make them loyal to Magneto's cause. Wait, why would that have that effect? Because science, look over there. Back at the X-Mansion, Storm and Jean are running the team through fight after fight in the danger room against robotic and or holographic versions of the Acolytes, the Blue Team, and Magneto himself. Right, because they worked out that the Blue Team will have been mind-controlled by now. Now, this is what I don't get. I didn't realize the Blue Team was supposed to have been brainwashed by Moira's genetic manipulation because there was Delgado and he was already fighting on Magneto's side. And it was implied that maybe he'd been brainwashed somehow already. So I thought maybe one of the acolytes just sort of off screen had telepathic powers or influence or something. It's a little confusing. I really feel like the whole Delgado thing should have been left on the cutting room floor. But what can you do? But what Storm and Jean find is that no matter how many different combat scenarios they run, no matter how many different configurations of it they run, the gold team, while super badass, has no chance of defeating the Acolytes and the Blue Team and Magneto simultaneously, which, I mean, fair fucking enough. One of the things that's interesting about this scene is that it's effectively Gene and Storm pulling a Cyclops move, like they're running the scenario obsessively over and over with every possible permutation is a signature Cyclops thing. And seeing other characters addressing that as a mode of leadership and seeing how they address strategy differently, and we're going to see this in some really cool ways much, 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 much later when, when Jean actually like on her own puts together a makeshift, basically press gangs, a makeshift team of X-Men to run a rescue mission. But seeing the ways that they take some of the principles that they're used to and change them and adapt them and the ways that they do and don't work for them is something that always really, really interests me. I also, one of my favorite things about Gold Team is that while Storm is officially the leader, in a lot of ways, she and Jean are basically co-running it. And the two of them in positions where they're sharing power and doing a lot of back and forth work so well. They're one of, for me, the definitive friendships of X-Men. Um, and the two of them getting to work together again is just makes me so happy, even if it's not in a book that I'm super fond of. Like, that's kind of almost enough. I completely agree. I love that friendship and I love that working relationship as well. 
but they don't have too much time to obsess over what's happening because suddenly holographic Nick Fury, who's possibly even more heavily armed and pouched than he was before, appears to tell them about the Magneto Protocols. The Russians are going to use their planet-busting cannon to annihilate Asteroid M with, you know, the blue team on it. But Fury's giving them a heads up, even though he's not supposed to, nice and early, so that they have time, if they can, to save their friends. Since when is Nick Fury this friendly with the X-Men? You know, here and there he is. I mean, he gave Wolverine the dossier on Wolverine's past, even though the blackmail Wolverine was using didn't actually make any sense. Okay, fair enough. Now, this brings us to the third and final issue of the arc, X-Men number three, Fallout, which opens with one of the most passive-aggressive captions I have ever seen in my life. Stan Lee proudly presents Chris Claremont's final issue of X-Men. Oh, I thought it was nice, personally. I mean, I guess? Well, anyway, a transparent plane glides to the edge of the atmosphere, pulled by what wind storm can muster. She's wearing like a sweet 90s spacesuit, which is half skin tight and half bulky future tech. It's very Jim Lee. The plane, on the other hand, is super Wonder Woman. It's specifically super, super golden age Wonder Woman, and it's great. It's awesome. And the gold team is on board, except for Archangel, who's flying with Storm. As are Forge and Banshee. This is all hands on deck for this critical mission. It's all hands on deck, and it's all powers on deck, too, because Storm is literally dragging this thing into space because if it has an engine magneto, we'll be able to sense it. It's transparent so that it won't be picked up by optical sensors. I guess the, the people just sort of floating in, it'll be too small. And yeah, it has no power source. It's basically just a big, like, lucite bubble. On board, Forge explains why humanity's nations are acting as they are, and I actually really love his dialogue here. The future they see, Gene, is one where they're destined to be perpetual victims. Innocents caught between beings whose powers they barely comprehend and haven't a hope of matching. Where they'll always be at our mercy. This way, they demonstrate they mean business. They may never be able to put the genetic genie back in its bottle, but they're still determined to be its master. And thereby prove Magneto right. And yeah, this is what fear does to people. This is what fear of change does to people. This is kind of the world that we still live in. As things escalate on Earth, so too do they escalate in space. And on Asteroid M, where Cortez asks Magneto why he doesn't have Moira genetically rewrite and thus brainwash Xavier as well. Because, my dear Cortez, I do not want Charles Xavier turned. I want him broken! They should have a code silver for when Magneto just goes full Silver Age. But I kind of love that. I mean, because the explanation we've been offered is that the reason Silver Age Magneto and Bronze Age Magneto are so different is because of Moira's genetic tampering. That's why he went from mustache-twirling, megalomaniacal, homicidal supervillain to very sympathetic, complex character. It's a canon explanation for what happened. Well, sort of it is. We'll get there. So in that case, his Silver Age performance here is just that. It's performance. Like, he is, he is constructing the Silver Age persona voluntarily that he previously just developed organically. But he's not doing a great job of it because Silver Age Magneto didn't collapse nearly as often as this Magneto does and, in fact, does right now. And Moira McTaggart realizes watching this that every healing session from Fabian Cortez, the effects are shorter and Magneto's just getting worse and worse and worse. Whatever Cortez is doing, it's not actually helping long term. But people who aren't worrying that about that too much are the Acolytes and the Blue Team, except for the imprisoned Charles Xavier, who are training or hanging out or something. 
or frolicking. Uh, Rogue and Gambit are definitely frolicking. I mean, Miles, you usually do both their voices. Do you, do you, do you want me to, to try to try to Southern accent it up and get my Rogue on? Absolutely, Rogue says as she dives into the pool. You like Gambit? I like that and more. Better watch it. I touch your bare hand with mine. I'll absorb your powers and psyche and all your memories. Maybe, maybe not. Want to take the risk, little river rat? And that's when she shoots out of the air and he falls over into the pool and she laughs at him. I gotta say, like, as much as I'm critical of some pairings in X-Men, like Wolverine and Jean just never made sense to me, Gambit and Rogue, I mean, yes, this is one of their first interactions on panel. In fact, I think it may be the first dialogue that they've exchanged ever in the comics, and it's just right there from the start. I think it also helps that Gambit, he's still very flirty and sleazy, but he's not as creepy when it comes to Rogue, and I think that's probably because she's clearly a match for him. She's beyond a match for him, and she's a match for him not just power-wise. Like, she is—Gambit can't actually do anything to her. But also, she can banter with him, and she can banter on the level with him, and she can play that game as well as he can and leave him speechless, which is always kind of a joy to see. And I gotta say, the X-Men 90s cartoon just fucking nailed that dynamic. I mean, the characters were stereotypes in some ways, yes, but their dynamic was always so much fun. And this right here is where that all started. Yeah, man, I don't think I like Gambit and Rogue very much as a couple, but I love their sort of combative flirting. Totally. Now, back in space, Aurora has run out of atmosphere to use her powers on, so Jean Grey takes over and telekinetically grabs onto Asteroid M from afar and pulls the plane toward it, as the narration says, Hand over mental hand. And Jim Lee just kills this scene. Jean just looks like she's straining so hard the way he draws her face. And there's so much Kirby dotted pink psychic nonsense everywhere because we are officially in the era where psychic powers are neon pink all the time. And I only have good things to say about that. This scene is just badass. I think all superpowers should be neon pink unless specified otherwise. I mean, I feel like that would get confusing past a certain point. You couldn't tell what powers they were. No, no, it would be great. And I mean, a lot of them do already have color coding or specifications, but I think neon pink should be the official color of, like, rad extra human powers. I feel good about that. So the gold team lands on Asteroid M, and Iceman freezes the outside wall so that it's brittle and Colossus turns into metal and shatters it. This is even better than a danger room open. This is a space heist open. It introduces us to the gold team, who we haven't seen as much about in this book because it's mostly about the blue team, and it has them team up and combine their powers in cool ways and introduce themselves, and it's just super great. I mean, we have already established that I'm a sci-fi nerd and a leverage fan. I genuinely believe that every good story should start with a space heist. And the space heist, to start with, is going pretty well. They almost immediately find Charles Xavier, who makes a joke about having been hoping for a pizza delivery that the rest of the team then gives him shit for, which I think is pretty great. But they're all telepathically blind due to a psychic inhibitor field, which, whatever, Magneto's got a psychic inhibitor field, I'm not too worried about it. You know what that means? It's time for... Creepy Surprise Kisses. Right. Now, this time, the creepy surprise kisser is Cyclops, and the kissy is Jean. And Jim Lee actually draws the art pretty well here. Like, Cyclops looks all kind of roguish and disreputable, which you don't often see with Cyclops. But still, god damn it, Cyclops kind of explains by saying... 
So tell me, Red, is my kiss as much fun as Wolverine's? And then pulls a quick 180. Cause it may well be your last. And he blasts her. God damn it. I didn't think the surprise kiss could get any worse, but it totally does. So yeah, the blue team is here. They've snuck up on the gold team. And again, if this is a back-to-basics reset, then of course we have to have an X-Men versus X-Men fight as the two teams fight each other. But it is pretty fucking awesome, I gotta say. Oh, but none of them are robot decoys. I feel like it's not quite a full reboot if none of them are robot decoys. I mean, we had some of those in the Danger Room open back in number one, but good point. And the fight's really cool. Like, Gambit deflects all of Forge's laser blasts with his staff because I guess he's some kind of fucking Jedi. Whatever, it's the 90s, we don't care. And Rogue finally breaks free of her mental conditioning and stops the fight by interposing herself between Cyclops' optic blast and one of his gold team targets. Okay, I'm imagining a poster like for the movie that just opened, except instead of The Last Jedi, it's The Worst Jedi. And it's Gambit. (laughs) I love it. Well, anyway, as the X-Men stop fighting each other, thanks to Rogue being awesome, Magneto and the Acolytes show up, and Magneto blasts the crap out of everyone and lifts Xavier up by his neck. You dare condemn me, Xavier, after what you've done! Valid, but before he can expand on that idea, Magneto collapses again. Moira, who is here now, explains her process didn't work. As soon as a mutant used their powers, the process was canceled. Magneto's choices were his own from the first time his powers activated. So how does that work with the X-Men? Because all of them used their powers a couple times before they reverted, before they figured out what was wrong. I mean, not that many times. I get the impression that there was a sort of kick-in period. But yeah, everybody is de-brainwashed. Furthermore, she reveals that Fabian Cortez had only been pretending to heal Magneto. What Cortez was really doing was just continually amping up Magneto's powers, and Magneto, he's dying from his wounds, from Wolverine stabbing him, from overstrain, from the nuclear weapon, from everything. Well, and more originally, from having his powers sucked out in the Savage Land. But Fabian Cortez, being a total douchebag, has already left the building. He is on an escape pod now that he's been found out and manages to somehow using, I don't know, technology, trigger the fucking plasma cannon. He's such an unrepentant asshole. And he basically tells Magneto, yeah, I don't actually care that much, but I guess you can be a martyr now and you'll inspire a whole other generation of mutant revolutionaries. Magneto, however, remains an immense badass and uses a magnetic shield, because remember, magnetism does everything, to block the plasma cannon, to block the gun that can fire through an entire planet, but it's not going to last too long. Not only does this take all of Magneto's power, but he is actively fading. Magneto urges the X-Men to get the hell out of there, and Xavier tries to convince Magneto either to come with them or at least let them take the acolytes with them them so, you know, fewer people can inevitably die in space. Magneto turns him down. They have made their free choice, Charles. So have I. My life was shaped by forces and events none of you can possibly understand. You speak to the best in humanity, I have endured the worst. You imagine the reality of the Holocaust, of the Nazi death camps. I grew up in one. Perhaps, as you say, I am tainted by blood and rage and death. 
But perhaps as well, that blood and rage and death comprise the armor that will sustain me and those who stand by me through the ordeal to come. The past is prologue, old friend, and the future I behold for you is war. Damn, Magneto. Xavier protests, but Rogue gets it. Y'all may use the same words, but you don't speak the same language. I wonder if y'all ever did. And as Xavier and the X-Men escape, and as Magneto's shield collapses and Asteroid M explodes, Xavier receives Magneto's final thoughts, which end with, I bore no animus to you, old friend, or your students, until you chose to oppose me. Then I had no choice but to count you among my enemies. Have no illusions on that score. Perhaps it's best it end this way, Charles. Best for my dream to end in flames and glory, here, far above Earth. For if we were ever to meet again, I would have shown you no mercy. I give you your dream, Charles. But I fear, in time, your heart will break as you realize it has ever been a fool's hope. Farewell, my friend. And, as Magneto's thoughts fade... Xavier wedges in the final word, which is pretty easy to do when you're responding to someone's last. Like Magneto, we have made choices in our lives. We have taken our stand for what we believe in. We were both haunted men, him by a nightmare, me by a dream. Time will tell which of us was right. His choice was ever fueled by rage, tainted by the despair that scars his soul. As ours, I pray, will be sustained by hope. We have it within ourselves, X-Men, as do all people, whether mutants or no, to leave our world better than we found it. To strive for the heights of our potential, to seek out the best in ourselves and in others. Where Magneto would have automatically assumed the worst. Yes. That is an ideal, perhaps an unattainable one. But success in this is not what is important. What matters is the attempt. And our powers, our role as heroes, perhaps even the simple fact that we live, gives us the obligation to try. And as the X-Men's plane streaks off into the background, we see one final caption. CSC 1976-1991. to And that works for me so well, because Xavier's final words, that's Chris Claremont's take on the franchise. That is the summation of what X-Men was to him in a whole lot of ways. And as flawed as these issues are, and I agree, Jay, there are a lot of flaws. They are very 90s in ways that do not always work. But as a last trio of issues go, God, you could do a hell of a lot worse than the way Claremont ends his iconic 15-year run. Although it does kind of imply that he died at 15. Eh, you know, even so. So that's the first storyline. I mean, we're going to see lots of aftermath here. Magneto, presumed dead, is going to be gone until 1993's Fatal Attractions. The parts of Asteroid M that crashed to the Earth will later serve as the basis for Utopia, the mutant island off San Francisco. In a fucking rad storyline. And Fabian Cortez, like we mentioned before, he's going to join the upstarts. He'll be around. But yeah, from... August 1976 to December 1991, 
Chris Claremont's run was unprecedented, and there's still just nothing like it. We've never seen one person so define an entire franchise in comics. Company-owned superhero comics. I think that's an important distinction to make. Yes, valid, valid point. That's true. But Claremont was actually already gone by the time the story was in print. It was basically a very lucrative severance package for him. Apparently, it paid for his house. And despite the fact that we do get that little bit at the end, despite the fact that Stan Lee mentions it's Claremont's last issue at the beginning, I kind of feel like we should have had much more acknowledgement for the end of such a monumental run. Yeah, for the, I mean, the context of his departure is so sad and so frustrating to me because he didn't really get to end his run on X-Men. He just sort of got unceremoniously edged out of it. And again, I think that there's value to changing the creative voices behind long running books. I think I think that is a thing that matters and that can be a really good thing. But I think when someone has defined a world, has defined a book, has defined a universe and a team as thoroughly as Claremont, and especially when someone has brought it from relative obscurity to a position of paramount prominence in its publisher's line, like Claremont deserved better than he got at Marvel for this, and he deserved a proper finish. And for that reason, I kind of think we should give the final word to Chris Claremont himself. This is from the X-Men Companion 2. The X-Men is the only Marvel book I'm aware of that, when it started, had a specific theme, that theme being that humanity hates mutants simply because they exist. The X-Men are hated, feared, and despised collectively by humanity for no other reason than that they are mutants. So what we have here, intended or not, is a book that is about racism, bigotry, and prejudice. That gives it a very possibly far heavier thematic structure than is perhaps intended for mainstream comic books. But I think that's one of the things that's given the book its endearing nature over the years. I assume that's supposed to read um, enduring. It's a book about outsiders, about people who are beyond the pale, so to speak, which is something that any teenager can identify with. It's a story about downtrodden, repressed people fighting to change their situation, which I think anybody can empathize with. And there you have it. For those of you who are new to the podcast, who have not perhaps listened before to a giant size winter special, you might think we're about to jump to listener questions, and we are absolutely not, because this is where we put the giant size in giant size winter special, which sounded much more pornographic than it was intended to, and absolutely is not in this case. Now, we, we tend to fill these out and pepper them with a number of other things, interviews. We had one that was involved a lot of sort of odd one-off sketches a while ago, um, and today... We have our producer, Matt Hunter, here to talk to us about what he does on the podcast, his work, his opinions on X-Men, and a lot more. So here you go. Enjoy. First, we have a special guest on the podcast. You've heard his contributions to it, but not his voice before. This is our producer, Matt Hunter. Matt, welcome. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, this is really interesting to be behind a microphone again. Absolutely. And yeah, thanks for um, having produced our show for, what, a dozen episodes now? Something like that, yeah. And it's been a lot of fun. You guys have a really, really great show. So I appreciate you guys bringing me on board. Oh, man, absolutely. So, yeah, uh, listeners, you hear Matt's work constantly. He's the one that makes us sound like we're not just randomly shrieking and foaming at the mouth people behind microphones. But now you get to hear his sonorous voice and opinions. So, Matt, how did a nice producer like you end up working with a pair of miscreants like us? Well, like most everything in kind of the world of audio and video, it was via a recommendation from a common friend. 
uh, Kyle Yant from the Kaiju cast. Yeah. And uh, listeners, Kyle, of course, was our producer for like a million years or well, more like two and a half years or so. Um, but yeah, once Kyle wasn't able to work with us. Yeah, I think you were his uh, his first recommendation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we actually uh, did a little bit of work in the past when we were almost kind of like the two faces of podcasting, which doesn't make a damn lick of sense. <laughs> but I had the uh, podcast called the A Jump Speed Shoots podcast, and we were kind of like a, a, a games deconstruction podcast. And of course, he had Kaiju Cast, which was an obnoxiously popular uh, monster based podcast, which uh, I think to this day is just really, really fantastic. Yeah. Kaiju Cast is awesome. Listeners, if you haven't heard, like you should totally listen to that. It's still going. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really, really mm-hmm. is. And, you know, through us working together we just kind of formed a friendship and uh just an immense respect for each other's uh work and uh through that i came to work with you guys so indeed and yeah i mean it's been a hell of a transition um first with kurt lloyd who is sort of our interim producer and and now with you because of course we used to record in kyle's own studio and now i'm recording from my bedroom jay you're recording from your bedroom matt you're editing from about 10 minutes away from where i live Mm -hmm. so it's definitely a little more complex and um i'm sure anyone who's been listening to us through the transition has seen us or has heard us rather gradually get the hang of it and i think right now it's been pretty good yeah, we're, I, I like the idea that gradually we're, we're sort of growing our web of, of geographic influence. Eventually, we'll just sort of take over the universe. I mean, I think it's sort of a blue team, gold team kind of thing right now. You know, Portland and New York. Talking a little bit more about X-Men. Um, I mean, I know everybody who lives in the world at least knows of X-Men. Uh, Matt, before you started working with us, what was your exposure to X-Men? Well, I think I think like most people our age, it was... Not necessarily like introduced, but like codified with the cartoon. Totally. You know, Saturday mornings was an event for my family. And oh, come here again. It's my dog Gimli. He was he was a constant fixture on A Jump Speed Shoots, which uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, back to my history uh, with the X-Men. My first conscious memory and like attachment to the X-Men was definitely the cartoon. Again, Saturday mornings were a huge event for my family. My dad would read the paper. I would, you know, lay on the couch with a bowl of cereal and just watch all the cartoons. So it was it was really ingrained as an important part of my childhood. Very quickly, Matt, I grew up largely without this, so I'm sort of obsessed with these rituals. What was your official Saturday morning cereal? Like did you have a go to? Oh wow. You know, it I didn't have a go to. It was it was a little bit of a a little bit of a cycle because my sister would like a cereal. My parents would like a cereal. I would like a cereal. And then we would all try each other's cereals. And it was this like kind of like sharing of each other's uh, like values, like cereal based values, I guess. I, I mean, no, that that's thematically appropriate. That's kind of what the X-Men do. They each have their uh, their cereal, if you will, in their powers. <laughs> they sort of trade back and forth. They see how things can combine very well. Mm-hmm, Sometimes mm-hmm. things go terribly wrong and they just end up with milk. That's a horrifying shade of pink. You yep, know? Yep. Yeah. And, and so I guess my mutant name would be Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Oh. <laughs> I like it. What, what are Cinnamon Toast Crunch's powers? Ooh, um, the ability to make exquisitely tasting milk. Okay, I'm down with that. It's one of those powers that's kind of selectively useful, but within a certain arena is like perfect. It's exactly what you need. Yeah, yeah. And but but the thing is, it's it's like really honed. It's very specific, but it's really just very effective. Laser focused. Laser focused. That's a great way to put it. Not not lasers. Not. not <laughs> okay. Force beam focused. 
Oh, uh, so yeah. I mean, the, the Saturday morning cartoon. I'm totally on the same page. Like yeah. I, I had read some of the X Men before then. My my father was really big into them, but that was when the X Men love really, really started. And like being there from the start and being able to read the comics that were coming out at the time and realizing that they were doing kind of the same thing was awesome. Like if you were watching the cartoon, you were getting a pretty good window into what was going on in the comics at the time in 1992 or whatever. But also what had been going on since the 70s. I love how condensed everything was. Yeah, it was it was kind of a reader's digest of like the X-Men storylines. Totally. Which yeah. I really appreciated because it, it, it definitely, you know, I gained familiarity with like, you know, Apocalypse and Mr. Sinister and all of these like really like larger than life uh, villains. And then when I started reading the comics, uh, I had a really, really kind of good launching point from kind of understanding like what their place in the world was. Um, and as far as reading the comics, like where did you jump in there? Was that something you were reading just occasionally or did you follow stuff more religiously or I was my comic reading was very was varied. I read a lot of different comics. The the comic I landed on most specifically was Spawn. Spawn was the one that okay. I collected a lot and I really, really enjoyed because it was just it was it was almost subversive in their uh you know, profile of what like a superhero is because it was someone who was just constantly in pain and just hated existence, but still had this like drive to do good. And like the supervillains were just insane. So uh, Spawn was kind of where I landed comic books wise. So you've watched a lot of the cartoon. Um, have you read many X-Men comics? Not a ton. I wasn't I wasn't an avid collector. Unfortunately, that that came later. I do remember reading uh, Extinction Agenda. I do remember collecting um, those comics with the foil cards on the front. Fatal Attractions. Fatal, yeah. yeah. Yes. Those were so super cool. And really, like, you know, as a very, um, like, kind of visually stimulated, uh, you know, preteen teenager, like, just the, the, the foil and hologram cards were just, like the best thing in the world. I remember trying to take one of them off and think and thinking it was like one of the trading cards and like, Oh wait, I just ruined the cover. Okay. So now I know. Wait, for, are they not? No, they, they were glued on and they were supposed to stay on there. And I didn't know they were supposed to stay on just because we always left ours intact. But I figured we just did that because that was the sort of thing that we did. No, you were smart to do that. Like that was the exact oh, thing. Yeah. And I mean, you know, kind of well. like expanding from that. Uh, I also was an avid, avid collector of the Fleer and uh, Masterpiece Marvel trading cards. Oh, yeah. I have, a, I have yes. a couple full sets of those as well. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I was actually I actually wanted to give my mom a call and be like, hey, do you still have my X-Men cards? I kind of want to like look through them. But I believe it was the 1992 Masterpiece collection where all of them were super muted art. Like there wasn't any like real vibrant colors or anything like that. And I absolutely loved it. It was like it was like almost watercolor art of these characters and uh it was just you know just oh the one where it looks like they're all in pastels uh yeah i believe so Maybe. yeah and so like and and actually like as far as like my understanding of the expanded x-men universe like that was that was the core of it right there that's where i learned about like mimic and oh was it cypher that could learn uh languages Doug immediately Ramsey, that's right yeah, yeah like mimics old school though mimics from the silver age ah but he did come back he did, yeah. So just reading the descriptions of the back of the cards and learning everyone's real name and where they're from and their mutant power, it was just, it was unreal. And then they had a little, uh, a, a few actual just humans in there that were just super evil and that was their, that was their power. 
Totally. And I love that about trading cards. Like this is, I don't think this is something we've talked about very much on the show, but yeah, it was the same thing for me. Like I grew up on those and that was part of my gateway into the Marvel universe. And so getting to find out about things like, I don't know, the Darkhold Redeemers are always the, uh, the characters <laughs> I come back to because Darkhold Redeemers is one of the coolest names in all of comics. And that was doubly true when I was like 10 years old. Um, and you know, the cards were actually a bigger deal than people thought too because the character Maverick who ended up being part of Weapon X he first was first introduced on one wasn't he exactly and that was so early on that they hadn't even finalized what his powers were so they just guessed on the trading card and that ended up not being his power at all I remember that Gambit was originally Remy Bordeaux on his trading card because Mm -hmm. they hadn't finalized his last name as LeBeau at the time (laughs) I love all that old stuff I like the idea that we can we can just sort of um we can we can no prize that into that according to you know Teeves and Assassin's Guild lore because, you know, maybe maybe he took Belladonna's last name at some point, but when their marriage was annulled and went back, reverted back to his original one. I mean, I like that idea, but this is Gambit we're talking about. I wouldn't exactly call him gender progressive. Yeah. Well, no, but their entire marriage was based around guilt tradition. And, you know, weird external shit. So it has really it really has nothing to do with how progressive he was or wasn't. Uh, Well, speaking uh, not of thieves and assassins, but in fact of other roles that a person could play. I'm known for my segues. Tell us about your long life in the Thieves Guild of Portland. Yeah, well, okay, it all started back when I moved here in 2006. Uh, I, I did want to mention, though, like your segues are on point every time thank you so much they, they like they're they're an editor's dream when you just like i mean here's the thing like you could be a little kludgy with them sometimes but it's just it's just the confidence that just like it just sails right through very very appreciated fake it till you make it <laughs> i entirely blame our early life devoted to watching monty python for that like the just and now for something completely different yeah. you know announcement really stuck the, uh, the 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 non segue segue exactly, yeah. mm-hmm. um, but what I was going to say is so you're not just a producer of this podcast, but uh, I know the last the, the last place I saw you in person was at Ground Control when you were running um, a chiptune festival called Micropalooza, and you mm-hmm. also do chiptune stuff yourself, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah. So or of that actually, if you'd like to play some on the show, uh, we, can, we can oh we can NPR it up. <laughs> It it actually started in college. I used to make uh, hip hop beats for a bunch of St. Louis MCs, uh, which was tons of fun, and I loved it. And I ma- actually made a little bit of, bit of money off of it. And one of the MCs came to me and said, "Like, hey, I want to rap over some video game music." And I'm thinking to myself, "That's actually really a really cool idea." And this was like 2003 before it became just completely overdone. So I was thinking, like, maybe I can plug my Nintendo into like my audio interface and just record and sample some Nintendo stuff. And I started doing some research online and saw that there is software made that allows you to make music natively on the actual hardware. So I, I was able to buy a Game Boy. I was able to buy this cartridge, put them together and just start sequencing melodies and beats. And it eventually kind of turned into my main source of music making, which... I mean, even saying it right now is just a little bit insane, but been one of my main musical identities for a very, very long time. Uh, I, I make it under the name Mechlo, which is actually from back when I was on AOL Instant Messenger. I don't know how I came up with it, but my name was Mechlo Man. I think mostly based on like wanting to be like a, a Mega Man villain. <laughs> oh. Speaking of which, rest in peace, AOL Instant Messenger. It, it officially, oh. as we're recording this, it mm-hmm. officially died, I believe. 
yesterday was its last day. Oh, wow. I was still using it to the end, so I was getting all of the, you know, Amos is going to disappear on the 15th updates twice a day all week. <laughs> Man, it, was yeah. really sad. it was sad. It was like it was like watching somebody gradually die. Mm-hmm. The same thing happened with me and uh, Winamp. Mm-hmm. I was still actively using Winamp, and it was still getting updates and stuff until it just... It oh, man. not so peacefully uh, was brought to the grave. In addition to your stuff, mm-hmm. if, if there are listeners who are hearing this and thinking, that sounds awesome, I want to listen to more of it, yeah. what chiptunes artists would you recommend they look up? Wow. Okay. So so one thing to keep in mind always with chiptune and chip music is it, it's not a genre. It's a method of making mm-hmm. music. So it's like saying acoustic guitar is a genre, which... <laughs> You know, not yeah, okay. Medium then. Yeah. So, um, if you want like some like you know kind of heavy hitting like you know big beat and house and old school techno, Henry Home Sweet, Kovacs are really really great examples. If you want like kind of more of a synth pop like video gamey flavor, uh, artist named Ultracid is one of my absolute favorites. Of course, there's Anamana Gucci. If you want your rock band with your chip tune. Um, God, like who else is? I mean, the classics are your, you know, Bit Shifter, Null Sleep, Bubbly Fish, Glow Mag. There's just there's so so many. And one thing I love about Chiptune is the odds of you finding something that you really connect with and you really really like are very very high because of just the the varied landscape uh, that's out there. Um, Arthur J. Keynes is another artist that does almost like folk indie rock Chiptune, which is really fantastic. There's a low. Uh, I'm, I'm just naming. So many right now. There's a local guy called Tonight We Launch, who's actually a pop punk uh, guitar and Game Boy outfit. Yes, I've heard. I've, I have seen him live. He's wonderful. Uh, he's one of my best friends, too. Uh, just the sweetest, sweetest dude. And uh, so, I mean, that's a great start right there. I'm not even going into like the, you know, the, the Euro- European demo scene stuff, which is a totally different topic. And obviously I can talk way too long about this, uh, all, all this stuff. So <laughs> I'll end there. No, this is great. I mean, we talk about the X-Men all episode, every episode and hearing about someone else's granular, detailed passion is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. This is this is this is great stuff. Um, so talking also about uh, specific passions. So um, I'm recording right now with you, Matt, in your in your studio at mm-hmm. your place. And there's like video game posters all around. No, no great surprise with the chiptune link to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are well, also- and with the fact that you used to do a video game podcast, right? Correct. Exactly. And so I guess uh, I was interested in hearing um, more about the podcast that you did, but also mm-hmm. about your take on video games that are more podcast uh, themed here, like the X-Men games from the arcade yeah. game to the shitty old NES game to, yeah. to whatever. So, yeah, um, I mean, probably my favorite and it doesn't really land on a lot of people's lists is the X-Men game for the Sega Genesis. Yes. The one where you had to reset it in Mojo's level. Yep. And and uh, you had the opportunity to like, you know, switch characters kind of on the fly. And it was very much like a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on the NES kind of style gameplay platformer. I just thought it was a really good looking game. The gameplay left a lot to be desired. But uh, as far as like, you know, kind of accuracy of like the feel and the world and just pulling from the comic books, I think that game did a really fantastic job. Yeah, they even had the Soul Sword outside Excalibur's Lighthouse. I mean, the detail there was awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the research definitely went into that game. And it was something that I really, really like I noticed and appreciated. Uh from you know just from really really early on even though i wasn't a big percentage I, I was i was a nintendo kid you know kind of front to back my sister had the second genesis but man when we rented x-men it was just like it was both of us just staring at the screen for the whole time it was really really great <laughs> you ran you ran a video game podcast for a while mm-hmm. um and 
I'm really curious about that because <laughs> we've we we struggle, and one one of our our biggest challenges throughout this has been translating a fundamentally vid- visual medium to to an audio format. And you're working with a medium that's not only visual but visual and interactive. It definitely took a kind of very descriptive, very, you know, uh, engaging. You had to be real excited about what you, what you were talking about because essentially what you were trying to do is you were trying to convey gameplay. So you were comparing it to a lot of other games. You were kind of describing what you saw in front of you. You were describing the... And what we did on our show, something I was very, very proud of, is we had a lot of, like, the emotion and the attitude and like the way we felt during the game was a huge part of us describing uh, the interactivity of what we were talking mm-hmm. about. So uh, mostly we would talk about you know, kind of very small independently made games that had very simple art styles and could run on most computers. So we tried making it as democratic as possible ultimately and describing a game like Papers, Please was difficult because Papers, Please is a border crossing simulator where you are checking papers, you are letting people buy uh, over the border. But then you have to talk about how there's there was a terrorist attack on the other side and you wonder, oh man, was that person who I just let buy the result of that terrorist attack? And then every person you let buy, you get $5 to bring back to your family so you can feed your kids and your mother-in-law and your wife and heat the house and give medicine. And sometimes you had to like say, well, okay, we're not going to heat the place so we can eat. But then everyone got sick. So now you had to buy medicine. And it was just this crushingly difficult, depressing, just like it was, it was very Eastern European circa like late eighties, early nineties. And just grim and muted colors and dark, but you were and oppressive with all the rules that you had to follow. And it was it was one of those games where you didn't play because you had fun with it. You played because it was an experience. You were put in a place that you've never been before. Mm -hmm. And so like right there is kind of an example of how we tried to convey video games and then hopefully inspire people to go buy the game or at least, you know, watch a let's play of it. Totally. I mean, and that's something that, yeah, I think whenever, like Jay, like you were saying, whenever you're translating one medium to another, that becomes important because you can't just say, you can't just describe the visuals and the audio and stuff like that. You have to talk about the experience of of consuming that art, of mm-hmm. interacting with that art. Yeah. And, you know, we've certainly uh, tried different methods of, of doing that on our end, but the way you're describing that, like, I've never played Papers, Please. I've heard of it. Mm-hmm. Now I really want to. One of, one of my favorite pieces of video game criticism, and the only piece of video game criticism that's actually made me cry. Is it the Badger thing? Yeah, it's the Badger thing. <laughs> it is, it's, I don't remember the title of the game. It's something fairly straightforward, but you play a mother badger. Oh, wow. And you're trying to get your kits safely across a, a distance. Mm-hmm. And apparently it's just a devastating game to play. And the, the reviewer's description of it and the experience of playing it and then sort of the, the, the gradual suspension of disbelief in their own investment in it was just devastating. It's, it's very apropos that you bring up criticism because, criti- you know, like game criticism in, in journalism has to do the exact same thing. It has mm-hmm. to be very descriptive and very visceral and use, you know, very, very descriptive language. And I, I think one thing that we tried not to do was be critics. 
we tried our mm-hmm. best to not say like this is a good game, this is a bad game. What we were mostly trying to do is this is worth your time, this is not worth your time. This will be an experience for you, this won't be an experience for you. I think what you're describing is really what criticism should be. Sure. This is good, this is bad is sort of a flat judgment and I mean mm-hmm. criticism I'm, this is this is me being being defensive about my field, but also criticism at its best exists less to dictate what people consume than to shape a conversation around it. Definitely. Yeah. And criticism to us was very much one of those like because both uh, we we had two game critics, me and my friend Steve, and then our friend Rich, who was just in it for the fun and for the experience. And we wanted to make sure that like all of our perspectives were represented uh, mm-hmm. mechanically. You know, au- you know, audio. Like, does this game do something interesting and different? It might not be a super fun game, but it might be a you know a game that you play just to kind of experience this type of visual. Like, you know, yeah, like the visuals are all kind of you know, watercolor and they're, you know, procedurally generated as you move through the level, but the gameplay kind of sucks. So there's that too. Yeah. And I think having those different perspectives reviewing on multiple levels that can work really well. That's something, um, Jay, that I think you and I have certainly tried to do is to have your more academic critical, I think exactly your, your Mm -hmm. more academic critical perspective and my more sort of like emotional gut reaction perspective to it. Although obviously there's a lot of of overlap there. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's one of the things I really love about podcasting. It's not just an article that even if it's written by committee is going to come across as having one perspective. Podcasting with multiple people inherently has multiple perspectives. And I love that. I love that you get that that interplay and you get to expand and discover more of your own take by playing it against somebody else's. I hate to I'm actually here, buddy. But, um, <laughs> um, actually, there, there are actually ways to, to have have uh, written articles be more explicitly dialogic. But that aside, <laughs> I mean, I, I think podcasting is, is obviously a format that, that lends itself to that more directly just because in those contexts it, it reads more as a correspondence or a transcript of, of conversation. Mm-hmm. I guess correspondence kind of at, at, at its best. Yeah. Um, podcasting at its core is basically just directed conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, agreed. Going back, um, Matt, mm-hmm. this, is you, this is a rare opportunity for us to have you on the mic for our listeners to hear you directly for you to address them so so here's a question Mm -hmm. is there anything that you would like them to know about you about production about the show or just general factoids that you feel they should be aware of you know like being locked in my basement editing all of these episodes of the podcast doesn't necessarily make me think about this very often but it, it is a very good question one thing that i i always always an advocate for is creation has become democratized Software has allowed just about anybody to do whatever they want. So whenever I, whenever I hear anybody say like, oh, my God, I, I, I wish I could have a podcast. It's like, you can. You totally can. I wish I could make music. You totally can. Like, you don't, you don't need to have a degree in music anymore. Like, software allows you to, it, it guides you in ways that things never did before. So if you have something you want to talk about, and you think you're halfway interesting or you have a friend where you guys have some pretty engaging conversations about politics, you want to share your views. There's software, there's hardware that's relatively inexpensive. There's a menagerie of tutorials on YouTube that you can watch. Um, if you want to create it, please create it. I love seeing people put things out there because if there's one truth about art and creation, sucking is step one. <laughs> That is like the most beautifully concise phrasing of that I've ever heard. I love that. (laughs) Yeah, if we, I was gonna say, if we gave our winter specials titles, this one would definitely be sucking a step one. (laughs)
it's something that people forget. They listen to what they create, it sucks, and then they give up because they just think like, well, it's going to be this forever. And I, I just want to drill into people's minds that like, no, it's not. And you'll be shocked how quickly you get better at it if you really, really, really want to do it. So if there's one message I want to put out there to everybody is start creating the thing you've been talking about. If it doesn't exist in this world, make it. Because if it's something you want to watch, if it's something you want to listen to, you're going to make the thing you want to watch and listen to. And odds are other people want to watch or listen to that thing as well. That's mm-hmm. where HMSB Shoots came from. I did in, tw- in 2010, there weren't a whole lot of uh, podcasts about deconstruction of video games and kind of like intelligent tearing down and, you know, kind of the political and social ramifications, uh, you know, uh, cultural that video games have to offer. It was us and the Brainy Gamer at the time, and we became great friends because we were doing a similar thing. And then all of these podcasts started popping up that started doing what we were doing. And we didn't want to be so bold as to say that we inspired all of this, but it felt great to see people steal our format and make you know their own interpretation of it. So, yeah, that's my kind of long-winded way of saying, please make stuff so the world can see it. Seriously, right there with you. This is a great big internet, and there is room for everybody and every perspective. And mm-hmm. having all those perspectives, that's not competition. That's just enrichment. We're all the better for it. One thing people get wrong is they think that something has to go completely viral for it to be successful. People forget yeah. that there are local scenes still. There, There's still like a local contingent of podcasts that we have here in Portland. Most like a huge, huge portion of our audience was local. And so we focused our kind of push to the local video game scene. And, Mm -hmm. you know, don't worry about, you know, your thing being watched or digested in any way in different parts of the country, in different parts of the world. Tell your friends about it. Have them tell their friends about it. Build this local scene. Inspire people to start doing what you're doing. Start building this network where you can start trading tips and kind of like, hey, I made this mistake. Make sure you guys don't make this mistake. And you'll all become... Yeah, you'll all become better at a very kind of similar rate and you'll all become more successful as a result of it. Like, don't think glo- like the Internet will think globally for you. Think locally. So we're almost out of time, but I realize there's one question we have neglected. And this is one that we've we've asked almost every single producer that we've had. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly a job interview question. I don't think we've ever worked <laughs> with anyone or not based on on the answer to it. But just because it's a thing that comes up and it's it's a good thing to have for, you know, basic human stats. Mm-hmm. Matt, who's your favorite X-Man? You know, and this was something that I was thinking about coming up to this episode. I'm not thinking about who is my favorite right now. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking who was been consistently a mutant that I looked at and went, oh, God, that's cool. And it's always been Iceman. Legit and a rare Excellent. answer. Iceman is yeah. amazing. He was one of my favorites, like uh, starting with growing up with Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Yeah. You are also specifically the first producer we've ever had who has not answered Nightcrawler to that. Oh, wow. Which is really interesting. Yeah. Nightcrawler's up there for me, for sure. And if I were if I were to say my favorite right now, it would probably be Nightcrawler. So, <laughs> a li- you know, a, a little bit of honesty there. However... I mean, the fact that he can essentially fly without actually flying, he just sleds, you know, down a road of ice that he creates for himself. Uh, he can touch things and just kind of co- like it's just like he he has such an amazing rounded kind of power that just can a lot of creativity can come out of what he can do. And I like I, I like that as a concept. I liked him as a character. Yeah. So I, I, I think my answer is Iceman. 
And now's a great time to be an Iceman fan because he's finally got his own yeah. ongoing series mm-hmm. by by and Grace. It's so so good. Have you, uh, have I you had a chance to read it? I haven't read it yet, but I've definitely heard of it, and it has been something that I've I've been I've been wanting to dive into. I don't think he's gotten a fair shake in the movie though. Uh, movies though, totally no, agree. Yeah. And I'm not sure if we're going to see that without a reboot, just because we do have this established Iceman as the sort of pretty boy largely in the background. Yeah. But, I mean, mm-hmm. Marvel got Fox, so maybe we'll see a reboot. Maybe Iceman will be more central. Uh, with that specific aspect, at least, I would not complain. I'd love to see more Bobby Drake. I would, too. I think it would have yeah. to be done. I, I think it would have to be done a very specific way. I think if you focus too much on him just being a badass with his powers, that would be the wrong way to do it. I think, you know, more of a story of him kind of like, you know, you know, the, the, the story of a mutant kind of coming into their powers, I think is a very powerful story and one that if told Mm -hmm. well can actually do a lot of really great things. So I don't know. Yeah. You, you gotta read the current Iceman story or Iceman series because it is exactly that. Perfect. I'm sold. (laughs) So with that, I think I think we are out of time. But Matt, thank you so much for actually being uh, on mic with us. Like, it's been so awesome having you produce our show for the last few months and yeah. hopefully for a, a very long time going forward. And getting a chance to actually talk to you on an episode has been rad. Yeah. And it is definitely one of those things where I, you guys have constantly talked at me. And so that's all I really know. So actually listening to you guys have a discussion with me is a little it's 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 kind of it's kind of twisting my brain a little bit. I'm still I'm still trying to get used to the fact that like I have this weird AI now that's communicating back to me. <laughs> we are actually just clever illusions. Like Miles right now is a hard light hologram. Yeah. Um, it's very impressive by and the I'm, way. And I'm I'm not even that. I'm I'm literally just just in your screen. But it has been great talking to you and we'd love to drag you back on the show. Yeah, yeah. I would I would be more than happy to to join you guys again. In the meantime, where else can our listeners find you? So there's a few places. You can go to SoundCloud. Uh, my name on there is Mechlo, so I think it's just SoundCloud slash Mechlo. And then I have 80s kind of synth pop project that I have going on right now called Moon Talk. That's SoundCloud.com slash Moon Talk Music. I have a mix a mix cloud account if you want to listen to my uh, ground control DJ mixes since I'm a, I'm a DJ at an arcade because uh, why that's the a regular, not? That's, that's a regular night, right? It is. Hey, thank you for, for reminding me. For yeah. Portland folks. Uh, for Portland folks, I DJ at Ground Control uh, every first Saturday, which is my Synthwave Saturday, and every second Friday, which is my Chiptune Friday. And I, 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 tr- I really try to dig up some really interesting, unique music uh, that, you know, and if you want to know what the music is, come to me in the booth. I'll definitely let you know. I love doing that. And I don't know. God, is there anything else I need to plug? I feel like I have too many projects. Well, if you forget, we can. You, you you've got the mic, and you can always patch it back in. Oh my God, um, you're just right. Send us the links to stick in the visual companion. Yeah, I have. I have. I have final say over every you audio have the power. file. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> wow. That it just occurred to me how much power I have, and now I'm terrified that I'm going to become drunk with power. Great power, great responsibility. It's right <laughs> you know, there, if, there's, if there is a time to become drunk with power, it is definitely a holiday special. Mm, okay, that's fair. Well, Matt, thank you again so much for being on the show. This has been great. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Matt. Um, You will continue to hear Matt's contributions on the podcast and hopefully his voice again before too long. But for now, the time has come, as it does once a year, every year, without fail, for... The fourth annual Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbo Awards for Excellence in Excellence. As every year, we're going to begin with the modern Corbos, where we look at the X books that have come out in the last year. Best Writer. 
we're going to go to Charles Soule for his actually amazing run on Astonishing X-Men. As much as we talk about how the X-Men aren't always written as themselves, goddamn, that dude has a great sense for the X-Men's individual voices. Highly recommended. As for the best artist this year... That Corbo Award goes to Alessandro Vitti for his work on Iceman and for giving both Bobby Drake's powers and his quirky facial expressions equal draw. Best colorist? That's Felipe Sobrero for Generation X. His sort of muted color palette, his choice of unorthodox colors for these characters works. This is a quirky book about quirky characters, and Sobrero captures the hell out of that. This is also a book written by an experienced colorist, and one, I think, where choice of colorist matters even more because you have the, the people composing it who knows how much power, power that can have. I'd be really interested in seeing how that ties into scripting and, and what it looks like when colorists start writing comics as opposed to people who've been pencilers start writing comics, etc., and where that emphasis lies. But that is beside the point because moving on. The award for best ongoing solo series goes to... That is going to go to Iceman, written by Cena Grace, with art by Alessandro Vitti and colors by Rochelle Rosenberg. Iceman has taken a character who has had two previous brief solo outings, both miniseries, and given him a book that's firmly entrenched in the X universe, but has its own distinct voice and allows him a degree of characterization and expression partly in context of recent narrative stuff, but also just in general in terms of approach to the character that Bobby Drake has never had. It's also, I think, the first book in the X-Universe and one of the first books in Marvel's line helmed or focused on um, a gay character. But that is a solo series. And we, we've divided up the best series corpos this year because we've got multiple, multiple picks. So... The Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau Award for Best Ongoing Team Series goes to... Generation X by Christina Strain, Amil Carapina, and Felipe Sobrero. I have been waiting for a book like this for so long. New Mutants was always my favorite X-comic when I was a kid. And once again, we have a book about not just the younger X-Men, not just the trainees... But the weirdos, the misfits, the characters that are fascinating to see bounce off Xavier's dream and each other. This book does it so well. Next is the Irene Adler Memorial Award for Most Anticipated Upcoming Series. If I remember correctly, a previous iteration of this award went to a Storm ongoing series. So I guess that's just going to happen every couple of years. This particular one is going to be written by Tanahasi Coates and drawn by Jen Bartel. I could not be more excited for it. Um, Coates is coming off a spectacular run on Black Panther. It's his first comics work. And although he's a, he's a long-term fan of the medium and a terrific and, and established writer in, in other media and genres, and Bartel's career up to this point has basically been an audition for a really kick-ass Storm series. So I, I, am, I am very, very happy to see this book, although I'm, I'm still waiting for a Storm series written by a Black woman because it is way the hell past time. All right, um, moving on. We have a new award this year. This is the How Was This So Good Award for a premise that shouldn't have worked but did. Weapons of Mutant Destruction, the Hulk and Weapon X crossover by Greg Pak. I mean, it's Amadeus Cho as the Hulk and a bunch of clawed killers going after a villain who's making Wolverine-Hulk hybrids. It sounds so stupid, but it's so much fun. The Cyclops Has a Good Day Award this year goes to... 
Champions number 12, in which Cyclops actually has a really bad day, but a bunch of really good friends who help turn it around. Another new award, although I feel like we could have given one out any year, is the So That Happened Award for Unprecedented Incident. We're going to give that to the last page of Jean Grey number 10. We're not going to spoil it, but wow. Holy shit, Hopeless. I know, right? The Nate Grey Award for Best Cross-Dimensional Import goes to... Bloodstorm in X-Men Blue. Welcome to the 616. Hope you survive, or at least the undead version of survive, the experience. I love Vampire Storm. The Coming Back Strong Award for Best Character, Returning to Prominence and Doing It Right. Hope Summers in the Jean Grey series. Dennis Hopeless has written a pretty phenomenal Hope Summers before, and that's no exception here. She is made of guns, attitude, and a traumatic past that she has actually gotten past pretty damn well. The Norman Osborn Award for Gratuitous Resurrection goes to... Fucking Logan? Really? Um, conversely, the Light of Our Life Award goes to the one, the only, the marvelous, the ever-upbeat... Newly minted Honey Badger. That's right, it's Gabby, the young clone of Laura Kinney, who is going to be on her very first X-Men team soon in X-Men Red, and I love her so much and I hope she sticks around until the end of time. I am as proud of her as if she were an actual child I had had, I had, had a hand in the raising of. And for the These Deep Cuts Form a Picture Award... Gifted for basically slowly building Earth 811 in what's functionally a mainstream TV show. I mean, fucking Rory Campbell. You guys know your stuff. I know, right? That show's actually pretty good. I'm enjoying the hell out of it. Yeah, I still can't tell whether it's good or if I'm just intensely its target demographic because I catch so many of the Easter eggs and get really excited. But what I will give it is that it's really interesting and it is obviously written by huge nerds who have done their homework and then some. So that brings us to the best non-X Marvel book award. And that is the new volume of... Runaways by Rainbow Rowell and Chris Anka. Runaways was always one of my favorite comics, and the current follow-up to it, I mean, yes, we know it's coming out because there's a Hulu series and so they want to have a comic, but it's great. It's Runaways that feels exactly like it used to, but with all of the plot events and characters that have happened before having happened. I really recommend it. Also, it, it prominently features my very favorite Runaway, who is also doing doing a great job making a name for herself on the show, um, the absolutely central Old Lace. That's right. That brings us to the classic Corpos. These go to books, creators, and material covered in the last year of the podcast, regardless its actual publication date. And we will start with the Buried Treasure Award for a series that maybe hasn't gotten its due since its publication, but which we were really happy to rediscover this year. Now, this one's a little weird because everybody knows the story, but at the time it was only in Marvel Comics Presents, which was a little more obscure than, say, X-Men, and that is the classic story, Weapon X, by Barry Windsor Smith. Another returning award is our You Tried Award, which goes to... Now, this one takes some, some context. This award has previously gone exclusively to fictional characters who did their best to do a good job in consistently adverse circumstances and rose to meet challenges with a plum and dignity, even if they were ultimately vanquished. We've awarded it before to Ileana Rasputin, to Magneto, and this year we're awarding it not to a fictional character, 
But to someone whose work and effort on his final days on X-Men, I think kind of epitomized the spirit of this award, and that is Chris Claremont. Uh, which, which brings us to one that does go to a fictional character. That is the Object Permanence is Overrated Award. This goes to the most inconsistently corporeal character in X-Books. And this year it goes to Amanda Sefton, who just sort of shows up and disappears at random without anyone really commenting on it. She'll be more consistent later, but for now, God, she was just there. Who? The ABD Award for Why Havoc Still Hasn't Finished His Dissertation this year goes to... Being a magistrate on Genosha, which which I gotta say is definitely his worst excuse yet. I feel like this might require some kind of lifetime achievement award, maybe like a job with a government group. I don't know. This brings us to the Murder Rainbow Award. Okay, the Murder Rainbow Award for most entertainingly and chromatically redesigned costumes. I gotta give this to the late New Mutants. I mean, I may not be the world's biggest Liefeld fan by a long shot, but that brief period before X-Force when they're all wearing color-coded and slightly stylistically different versions of the same costume, it's pretty great, and that hot, that hot pink suits Boom Boom so, so well. The Lurking in the Wings Award for Best Side Character About to Become a Main Character goes to... That goes to Guido Caracella soon to be named Strong Guy, who has been showing up on and off in the pages of X-Books for a while and is finally about to find his place on his first X-Team. The Sauron's Jorts Award for Draculas Who Are Not Draculas But Try Real Hard Award goes to... Crimson and the Four and Twenty Blackbirds, the color-named, hey, there's those colors again, sort of psychic vampires who might just be drama students and get killed real good by Archangel. The Let Us Never Speak of This Again award goes to, of course, Charles Xavier's swimsuit area, as distressingly rendered by Wills Portacio, of which we will in fact never speak again. The Major Christopher Summers Award for Most Awkward Family Reunion this year goes to Rachel Summers and Jean Grey finally meeting for the first time in Days of Future Present and it going terribly. Ouch. The Kitty Pride Sartorial Exception of Excellence Award goes to... The Rocketeer Ensemble from X-Men True Friends, or Kitty Pride's one really good costume. It finally happened. Briefly, fleetingly, and exquisitely. Let us admire it as it fades into yet another series of sartorial disasters. The On the Nose Award for Effective Use of Metaphor goes to... Genosha. I gotta say, the idea of an anti-mutant apartheid state really, really works. I think it was quite maturely handled. And then there was that weird immortal demon cyborg head, but that's a different story. Oh man, maybe we should have given Hodge the You Tried Award. <laughs> the Best Jacket Ever Award goes to... Cyclops in X-Factor Forever for the Best Jacket Ever. The Eric the Red Award for characters whose sheer existence justify our work on this podcast goes to... Jen Ascani. Cable may be complex... But it's kind of all her fault. Also, she's very confusing, and her name is very confusing, too. The Future Past Award for Most Anticipated Upcoming Series Coverage goes to... Peter David's first run on X-Factor. Man, Quicksilver on an X-Team. Some of the best character dynamics. Larry Stroman on art. I'm really, really hyped for this. We have one award left, and this award sort of exists outside of and encompassing the current... And the classic Corbeaux, it's one we award every year, but it's one that this year I feel like has been earned particularly intensely. 
the Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau Award for Excellence in Excellence for the best listeners of any podcast ever. Now, we have honored some really great listeners in past years, but this year, the winners are are just particularly close to our hearts. They have shown amazing dedication, patience, persistence, support, and humor in the face of adversity, hiatuses, and weird billing issues. That's right. It's you. Congratulations, everyone. And speaking of listeners, you've got questions. Jamie Green asks on Tumblr, would you have split the members of the Blue and Gold team up differently? So I was initially thinking, yes, I totally would, because the blue team, let's face it, is just plain cooler than the gold team. Oh, bullshit. Well, in terms of nine-year-olds in the early 90s, they kind of are. I mean, they've got Wolverine, Rogue, Gambit, and Psylocke on the same team. That's too many badasses. Rogue's okay. But I mean, there's a reason the cartoon was most of the blue team, plus Storm and occasionally Jean. Now, I get why they did it. Between splitting both the old X-Men and X-Factor pretty evenly and keeping Cyclops and Wolverine separate from Jean so that they didn't, didn't have to deal with that, having Cyclops and Storm be on different teams since they're both good leaders, and keeping Gambit and Rogue together, that actually makes it really hard to gender balance or do much of anything outside of this arrangement. I mean, they kind of did the best they could. That said, I think I'd probably throw Rogue and Gambit onto the gold team, and in exchange, bring in some kind of a wild card female character for the blue team, like, I don't know, maybe Dazzler or Lila Cheney. I'm going to go a little harder. I would get rid of the blue and gold teams as steady teams. I would have them reassigned for different stories. I would also streamline the cast significantly. So we're working with a smaller core group. I would retire Cyclops. I would make him a civilian at this point. I would have him go back and try to do his own thing. Gene wants to be a superhero right now. He doesn't. And honestly, he's not adding a lot to this book. I would also probably retire Wolverine for the most part. I'd still have him around the edges. I'd still have him showing up fairly regularly, but I wouldn't have him as a regular cast member. Again, he's got his own series. He's doing his own thing, and he doesn't really have a solid reason to be back with the X-Men. I would keep Storm in charge, probably co-leading with Jean, and keep most of the characters the same, although I would have Forge as a more active team member. That's a really good answer. I like that one, too. Thank you so much. RevZJ asks on Tumblr... Both X-Men the Animated Series and X-Men Evolution have holiday episodes. Which one do you think best represents the holiday season? I think they're both pretty terrible, honestly. They're different kinds of terrible, though. The, the X-Men Animated Series one is kind of delightfully horrifying 90s X-Men Animated Series Morlocks terrible. And the Evolution one, it's not actually bad, but it just doesn't stick out for me. That said, I'm cynical and awful, and as a result of that, I have very specific and really, really stringent standards for holiday specials. So, I mean, I don't think the, uh, again, I don't think the Evolution one is terrible, and I know it is especially super beloved to um, Cyclops Rogue Shippers, so enjoy it if you want to. But of the two, I think, I think in terms of at least entertainment, uh, the original hands down wins. I haven't actually seen the X-Men Evolution one, but the animated series one is lots of fun. It's okay. It's it's the only one Angel's in, and it's, you know, Christmassy, and Magneto gets in a fight in a church, and it's it's okay. It's there. Dave Rudden writes, asks on Tumblr, Why do you think Kitty Pride wasn't in the 90s cartoon when she's such an iconic and important character? Nothing against Jubilee, just curious. I think it's mostly when the cartoon came out in the early 90s. Jubilee was a much more 90s kid-ish character than Kitty, what with her fashion sense and sarcasm and general jubilee -ness. 
She was also much more central in the line and in the main X book at that time. But more than that, you, you describe Jubilee as being a much more modern 90s kid. And I think that's part of why Kitty was, wasn't going to be the focal character for the cartoon anyway, because she wasn't an iconic kid of an era. In fact, a lot of her appeal and a lot of what made her work as a character was that she wasn't that relatable as a teenager. She didn't relate that well to her peer group. Jubilee is much more the classic teen tween character as they get shoved into cartoons in the 90s. She filled that role much, much more directly than Kitty would have. Yeah, and as you alluded to, Jay, uh, Kitty wasn't there. She was off in Excalibur and had been for quite a while. That was a much less central X-book than the ridiculously well-selling, adjectiveless X-Men. Also, honestly, more racial diversity on the team is a really good thing, and I think that where you can find places to do that, you should. Yep. Concord Dawn asks on Tumblr, If you could date anyone in the X-Universe, who would it be? Or who would you choose for your co-host? Nobody. Nobody should ever date a character from a company-owned superhero franchise because it never lasts and it really never ends well. And honestly, I've been like describing the soap opera of these characters' lives for the last several years for a living, and I'm really solid on the fact that I don't think it's a good idea to have relationships with them. Actually, wait, no, no, I'm going to make an exception to this. If I had to date one character from the X-Universe, I would date Harry. Harry? Harry of Harry's Hideaway, the perpetual watering hole of the X-Men, because he's basically indestructible and unflappable, he seems like a generally affable dude, he is pointedly not a bigot, and he seems like he'd be a fun, he, you know, he, he seems like he'd be a fun guy to hang out with. Also, he owns a bar, so, you know, that would be fun. Yeah, that's not a bad answer. Right? My answer for you is basically the same, because I, you're, you're one of my best friends, and you're important to me, and I would not wish the X-Men on you. Well, that being said, I certainly thought a lot about this when I was a kid. I mean, so it almost certainly wouldn't go well, and I suspect I'm not her type, but I did have a pretty big crush on Rogue when I was a kid. Also on Wolfsbane, but I feel weird even reminiscing about that crush because she's such a perpetually young and innocent character, so we'll just slide past that one. Oh, she's super your type, though. Oh, yeah, historically. And I mean, geez, like who wouldn't be into Longshot, at least until his memories of me would inevitably get wiped out by Mojo and I would be very sad. Now, I interpreted the co-host part of that question differently. I thought it meant who would you choose to be your co-host, not who would you choose for your co-host to date. Oh, shit, I'm going to have to rethink this real fast. Well, anyway, Jay, if you left, I would miss you. But if I had to pick a new co-host from the X-Men, um, I would say that Beast is a great mix of both academic and heartfelt. Or alternately, I feel like Karma would have a unique perspective and a whole lot to say and could be good, too. I'd go with Bishop. You know? What you're looking for in a co-host is not only someone with whom you'll have good, good repartee, but someone who brings a perspective significantly different to yours. Bishop comes from the future, man. Valid point. Now, this is the part of an episode where we usually thank a couple of listeners, you know, as like Magneto or the Angry Claremontian narrator or whatever, but as has become tradition in our winter specials, we really want to thank everybody who has listened to our show. Individually, by name. This'll take a while. No, but seriously, like everybody who's listened, whether it's to one episode or all 170 whatever, whether it's people who have just listened on their own or promoted us left and right, all of you make this so, so worth it. And this year, that is especially true. Between the hiatus, between personal challenges, between the fact that you have to keep, you know, a pillow and two sets of pajamas at each of our houses now, 
in in addition to to production challenges and getting our footing recording this this thing long distance still trying to find our way back to the video reviews which are definitely coming in the beginning of 2018 by the way um you have been not only super patient but really actively supportive and enthusiastic and amazing uh you've been there for us and for each other and we just love you all a lot you're really good yeah, it's been a hard year. I mean, certainly for us individually, but also just for a lot of people all around the world. And knowing that you were all out there being awesome to us and to each other and in general, that's really helped us through the hard parts. It's a rough world out there. We're all kind of all we have, each other. So thank you and happy holidays. And seriously, we love you for real. And I want to add uh, the next place that we'll be seeing you in person. We just found out today. It's not quite official. It's not up yet. So don't tell them that we told you. We're going to be doing a live show and we'll be tabling as well at Emerald City Comic Con. Live shows on March 3rd. See you there. And finally, while we can't name everyone, I do want to give one last shout out to Cordelia, who covered this week's opening beautifully, and to her dad, Ben, who put us in touch. You are fantastic. We are looking forward to you growing up and... Um, helping the the previous generation of Littlest Experts take over the podcast someday so we can retire. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, whose voice you heard on this week's episode. And Matt, a special thank you to you for editing and producing this extra-long episode right around the holidays. We really appreciate it. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode and soon once again, video reviews of current X titles. Our show is 100% listener supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Havoc continues a long-term pattern of failing to finish his dissertation. But at least he gets a job as X-Factor begins its second incarnation. Mm-hmm.